Good afternoon, and welcome to this edition of V-Radio. If this is your first time tuning into V-Radio, you can check out my archives on YouTube or on Anchor Podcasts, which reaches out to several different podcast outlets, including Apple Podcasts, iTunes, etc. Um, today, my guest is Ben Stewart. Ben Stewart was the filmmaker behind Climatica and Esoteric Agenda. He's been doing a lot of great work on um, Gaia, and his own work on YouTube has been fantastic. Um, he's, he was definitely a big, you know, basically a big part of, you know, my transformation from being just a person to being an activist, you know, back in like the 2008-ish period, and has continued to be an influence on me today. So thank you, Ben, for coming on the show. Man, it's such a pleasure. It's been a while. We've, we've done some podcasts in the, pa- in the past and uh, always had a lot of fun. So thank you for having me back. No, I appreciate you coming back on. I just, you know, it's I've kind of felt like the call to come back to doing this, like there was something inside me that said it was time to do it again. So, you know, that's what I'm hoping we can talk about today. You know, so I guess uh, what I would say that, you know, is different now for me is that um, I've been studying a lot about specifically about human beings and how they think, because I get the feeling that something is actively trying to inhibit our ability to think and to be able to perceive reality. And I was doing some deep studies because one of the things that I stumbled on was that psychology and sociology are having a serious reproducibility problem, meaning that many of the papers that have been established as doctrine or even in textbooks have been found to not be reproducible. In any other science, this generally means, okay, well, I just crumple this up and throw it in the trash. You know, you couldn't, for example, get away with that in engineering. You couldn't get away with it in chemistry. Um, And some of the social science papers that I started reading as a result of this don't even have studies in them. They don't even have data in them. They literally look like papers that are just like an opinion piece, you know, written about behavior, um, you know. And then the problem is, is that these then get peer reviewed and then published, which we'll get into in a moment. But as far as legitimate studies, one of the ones that has had a big place in my mind and in my mental presence lately is the ash conformity experiment Hmm. and there's a moment in that uh, are you familiar with that study i'm not okay so the ash conformity experiment was done by um, a psychologist and this is one of the studies that is reproducible Um, in fact pretty much almost every time and in it there are several people in a room only one of them is actually uh, being yes. experimented on. Oh, okay, so you are familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, only one of them is being experimented on, and the rest of them are paid actors. And then they display these lines on the wall, and one of them is a different length than the others to some, you know, some basic degree of that. And the actors are told to give the wrong answer. And then they test to see how many of the non-actors will actually go ahead and give the wrong answer because everybody else did it. And when I was trying to discover what it is that was mentally motivating me to get back involved in activism, one of the other elements of it was they did a variation on this experiment where there's one person who's essentially, you know, like they have a term for that unfortunately I couldn't find, but they're basically the ally, the person who also gives the correct answer. And when that happens, the statistics have shown that the person who is not the actor is far more likely to go ahead and give the correct answer and not give in to the crowd. But most people do just give in to the crowd. And so what this brings about as far as to where I'm at is that I feel like that's me. That's my role. I'm going to be the person who says the quiet part out loud. I'm going to be the person who, um, you know, tries to, you know, say the things that everybody wants to say, but maybe they don't have the courage to say. And I kind of stumbled on 
kind of a an inner lesson I would call it, where I realized that there are different layers to this problem of like people who are perceiving reality correctly and people who are not. You know, there's the first layer of people who perhaps, I mean, not to be cruel, maybe they don't have the ability or the capacity to comprehend that there are people that manipulate reality, that, you know, that convince people of things. You know, so those people generally, they're not even perceiving that somebody's putting out a signal to try to control the way they think. You know, um, and a signal by that, I just mean as a metaphor, not literally a signal. You know, but then there's the next layer, who are the people who are aware of it, but have too much social anxiety to do anything about it. They're the ones who might private message you on Facebook saying, hey, man, I really agreed with what you said there, but wouldn't participate in the conversation itself. And then the last layer are the people who are aware of it and are using it. The people who know, yes, you can manipulate groups of people. This is how you do it. And there are two different types I tend to run into there. And I kind of thought about this because one of my mentors, Senator Mike Gravel, recently passed away. And he was one of the people who was aware of it. He wasn't going to let anybody do it to him, but he also wasn't going to let anybody to do it to anybody else. And people like that have a tendency to get targeted by the system. You know, throughout history, people like William Wallace, Crazy Horse, you know, et cetera, who've like kind of been able to say out loud the part that you're not supposed to say. Um, but anyway, Ash Conformity basically kind of explains that those people are more or less, you know, manipulated by kind of a primitive sense that we have that we have to go along with the group. So I guess my, my question to you would be, I see that you're doing a lot of work right now that is, you know, in kind of in sync with what I've been doing, which is just to say to try to ask people the critical questions to get them to think clearly about what's really going on around them and, and not even demanding that they agree with you. Cause that's the other thing that seems to be prevalent right now is everybody wants you to agree with them 1000% of the time, you know, and there's no deviation allowed, you know, whereas you're saying, look, these are some things I've saw you, you may, you be the judge. This is what I think. So what do you think? <clears throat> well, yeah, man. So everything you said, uh, it has a, an air that like rings truth to it. So I appreciate what you said. And, and yeah, you know, with my show Waking Infinity, I act as a news anchor. Um, but I see what most news anchors are, um, not just do, but like who and what they are and how they use their voice, how they use their words and how they load words which we think are these immovable, fixed, and very highly defined um, universal building blocks of logic. And in many ways, that's, that's not even what it is. But, you know, most anchors, they will use the way they speak to load it with subcontext. And so I noticed that there was a lot of news out there that really disempowered people. And the way that I kind of put it is most news the underlying the the subtext to it is you the helpless audience member or the victim and you the freedom loving audience member that just wants to get on with your day and spread love and cheer you i'm going to show you who's to blame for you not being able to do that and to live in a safe world and it's these people and it's heads on chopping blocks that's every news outlet is Who's to blame? What's to blame and who's to blame? And I've found that there's this balancing act because when people swing to the other side of the pendulum, usually what they do is like, well, 
then it's all metaphysical and it's all timeless and um, mythological, meaning you, you shouldn't point out who is involved. You should just point out the ideologies that are failing. So it's some kind of ism that's the problem. And then that also ignores that there are actual people involved that are up to what most would say no good, ill intent. And even if you think that there is good intent behind some of these global um, moves, the global positioning that's happening out there, um, that's coming from a very small group. For the most part, most news is is just the one-sided, you're the helpless audience member and we are going to tell you who you should hate. Because that holds a, I even look at it almost in the sense of a, uh, a circuit board. There has to be some kind of communication um, pattern and a, a rhythm and a consistency. And so when you have that pattern, like, you, the audience member, are being disadvantaged by these people, then it makes people feel like, so let me just say, when people feel like they're being disadvantaged, which is what news is made to make you feel, if you watch most news, that's all it does is make you feel like you're under attack. When people feel like they are the demographic that's being targeted and disadvantaged, then they're open to radical ideas of change. So change is good. Radical change can be good, but for the most part, it's usually fueled when you're talking about the news. It's fueled by this feeling that you've been wronged and there's a little karma that needs to come to the perpetrator. And right, so we get, right. wrapped, we get wrapped in this um, alternative use of our potential. And I'm going to try not to use like spiritual um, terminology, but I hope everyone listening can understand that we have potential of our mind, our body, our focus, our willpower and community beyond what we're told, especially by news or educational systems. We have a lot more power than we understand. And I think the, the, the point of my news show and very, very few outlets out there is to actually remind the audience that don't believe the actual granular bits of information that I'm giving you and start to take a look at when, when I bring to the table a topic or a concept, and then I also give ways to see it from different angles that might even seem like they contradict the topic or the concept that I'm bringing up, then it makes it easier for you to see that what I'm doing is less trying to convince you of an external fixed reality that's immovable and it's it's just something that we're all imprisoned and doomed to um, to have to bear witness to, but we don't have much influence in it. So then you take, who are humans? Well, we barely know, but we're told that we are these biased, very fickle, um, violent creatures on this planet. And if there's any plague, it's actually humanity is the plague. And we're also led to believe that we're living on, you know, a dead, less intelligent um, planet that has very little power. And it's, it's just subject to the wickedness of the human plague. And then on top of that, we're just a tiny little speck in an endless universe and a tiny little blip on the timeline of history. We're so insignificant. And so this is the overarching in science institution. Um, and when I say science, there's science, the aspect of consciousness. 
And then there's the institution, which is what large groups of powerful people do when they try to harness the power of science, you know, in their institution. And so you see all these groups, these academic groups that are saying, we own science. We have all the data and data equals facts and facts equals science. So we have all of that. Don't trust your intuition when it comes to the the virus that's out there, when it comes to health and staying healthy. What does news always tell you? Masks, six feet away, isolate yourself. All these things that are actually evolutionarily, when it comes to psychoneuroimmunology, they're not good for your health. They're not good for your life expectancy. But the strange thing is, is they never mention anything about how, how you could eat a little better, how maybe you can move your body a little better, how maybe you can meditate and stress reduce a little better, maybe just drinking a little bit more clean, pure water throughout the day, um, taking, taking some magnesium and maybe some more vitamin C. These are just very rudimentary, fundamental things that could be benefiting us, yet we are not told the things that are easy to access that would up our human potential gain. We're told all the things that are, you're a minuscule little human, and you probably wouldn't understand the logic of geopolitics or legal language or all these things. So leave it to the experts. You just, you go to work, you go back home, you consume some media and then go to bed, get up tomorrow and do the same thing over and over again until you decide you're done and you're just going to wait it out until you die. This is the societal machine that most people are put through, and none of it empowers the human potential. So, so that's kind of what I think about, like, the, the overarching thing of when you're trying to get people to think critically, and when you're saying that there are some people that they don't even, um, they don't bend to logic, they bend to groupthink. Well, it's kind of obvious because there's architecture inside of us. You can call it neurology, but I, I call it the architecture of mind but it's that it's that kind of mind that we all utilize the same kind of this mind there's an ancient architecture that's spoken about in this book called the human brand and it's basically it's it shows that one of the earliest things the human intellect and mind had to do was if you're walking through nature and you see another creature whether it be a human from another tribe or an animal instantaneously, like within a fraction of a second, you need to have already made a snap judgment on what their intentions are and how capable they are of enacting their intentions. If it's good or if it's bad, you really want to know that instantly. Should I freeze to make sure this creature or human doesn't see me? Or, you know, does it have ill intent, but it's like two inches off the ground? Like, how much do I really care? So, that kind of stuff where, where people are kind of beaten out of their logic is usually when they're in reactive fight or flight mode. Now, look at news. It's always tantalizing your amygdala and your medulla oblongata. It's turning on these archaic forms of consciousness that are there to protect you in the worst, most extreme case scenario. But now you have a drip feed of it, and we're not looking through the woods and, and scanning nature to see what our threat level is. We're always looking at our phones to figure out, are we safe? And the news is always telling us you're not safe. The world, no matter whether you believe in conspiracies or a weather catastrophe or AI catastrophe or something, everyone, even the mainstream is saying within the next 20 to 30 years, we're in for a world of hurt. So this is where I come in. And what I try to do with my show is show people that 
like, listen, I'm going to lay out some topics that people are talking about today. And it'll be about some heavy, you know, kind of hot topics that are triggering a lot of people. But then what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask yourself, when have you, when was the last time you checked in with yourself to see how you feel about this? Because most people, they're not looking for truth. They're not looking to the fringes of what most people are talking about to see where truth might lie. They're only looking for safety in the herd, which is what animals do. And so right. you'll see this massive bison um, let their child be taken down by a pack of wolves or whatever, right? When, and, and find that safety inside the herd. And they'll let their, their little, you know, bison cub go, if that's the right word, I'm not sure, calf maybe, um, be taken down because they feel safer in the herd. And so most of us, we're not looking for truth. We have found a tribe that we feel safe within, and they are kind of like an echo chamber. They don't, right. they don't challenge our deeper fears. They, they, they allow us to stay in a kind of um, static mental state where we fear the same stuff, but at least we're comfortable in our fears because most people are afraid of what they don't know more than they're afraid of the stuff that they hate in the realm of what they do know. So this is kind of what I do is I, I help, I, I try and and use the language and the tone of voice to allow right. people to, to just hear a different form of logic that moves you differently. And this is the one big, and I'll just stop it here, but this is why I make the films and the movies that I do the way that I do. And I get lumped in with a lot of people. Like I was lumped in with Peter Joseph and Zeitgeist when I started making films, rightfully so, because I made a film right at the same time. And I was, I was actually highly influenced by Zeitgeist 1 for very specific reasons, because of the way he used his voice, of the quality of the film that he put out, the fact that it was free and it was anonymous at first. So it wasn't like this, hey, everyone look at me and my philosophies. And it wasn't like this, hey, before you're allowed to watch my message to humanity, you have to pay up. Right. It, and it was well done. It wasn't just thrown together by somebody who really doesn't know how to move people from within. It had a good soundtrack. So that's the main thing is I look at film more like music. And I also look at news more like music. It's less about did you believe what I said? And it's more about, did it move you? Did it move that thing inside you that when it, once it's moved, it's, it's, it forever remembers that thing about us that gets inspired and that wants to do something, that wants to be a part of something, not out of fear, not like scared into the herd, but inspired into a new demographic or a new tribe that allows you to be freer but also more of who you are authentically without feeling like you're, you're overly judged, but also held accountable. So when you're, you're lacking your own moral fortitude, the people that love you, they know they must challenge you in the sweetest and the nicest of ways to make sure you're living up to your own standard of potential. So that's, that's kind of the stuff that I focus on in, in my work and in my films lately. So it's interesting. There was a few different notes that I had mentally as you were talking. One of them is the irony of what you're saying, because Peter Joseph is also a musician. Like, that's actually what he was doing. He's a music major. He specializes in percussion. I guess it never really went anywhere. He had wanted to be in a symphony, but he's actually a very introverted person and did not want to be a public figure at all. And what Zeitgeist One was, he had done a music show. I can give you a clip of it on YouTube. 
and that was just like the stuff he had going on on the screen in the background. Um, and because of that, which don't get me wrong, it, it meant something to him at the time. But like as he's you know since moved past it, he's pointed out he's like I'm not even necessarily saying that I was a thousand percent in love with everything that I was putting up there. These are just things that I was thinking about at that moment. And he's like, so he wanted people to be able to kind of, you know, pull the mask off and, and take a look at things, you know, with their own brains for a little bit and challenge some of the, you know, the ideas of the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, so that's why I tell people because that film, unfortunately, also caused all kinds of controversy for him. Like, for example, Christians won't listen to a word he says, even if it's correct, because he did a part of a film where it challenged whether or not Christianity was real. You know, um, and I've been trying to like with my audience, I do have some Christians and I just tell them, I'm like, look, I don't care if you disagree with me on certain things. What I want you to do is to be able to go, you know, interact with me on the things that you do agree with me on and then be able to mentally, you know, challenge the things that you don't agree on, but not in a way that has to be violent or nasty or, you know, and they've I've gotten a lot of compliments for that, which is why Mm -hmm. I have this right leaning audience that I didn't have before. And I kind of make it clear to them, look. You know, I'm about to talk a little left right now, so you know, don't don't turn it off. I promise, there's a reason. You know, and, and yeah. I managed to kind of build a trust with them. But as far as like one of the things you talked about about the kind of primitive element is something else that I kind of came to a conclusion about is that um, there is this is also kind of where I deviate from Jack Fresco a little bit is that I believe that there are still some primitive like portions of our brain that still function that have purposes that maybe we're more suited to a primitive environment of, you know, like struggling to survive. And one of those, I think, is what gets activated by these people who know how to manipulate people, particularly when it comes to herd or pack or tribe mentality, you end up with this situation where if somebody wants to divide people, then they start splitting them up into other tribes. And that actually segues into one of the other things that I've been unfortunately having to like beat my head against the wall with lately. But, um, when I was at Occupy Detroit and Occupy Flint, they were two completely different camps as far as the feeling of what it was like to be in there. When I first got there, it was this beautiful, harmonious blend of people all working together towards the same, you know, world conscious, let's make the world a better place. We were all unified. We were completely like, it was the most diverse situation I've ever been in my life. And that feeling was powerful. And I've been homesick for it ever since. But something happened, and it's funny because it was almost like a scientific experiment because Occupy Detroit had this problem, Occupy Flint did not. And what happened was that people showed up and started doing like workshops about uh, racial issues, gender issues, LGBTQ issues, which these things are all important, but they framed them in such a way that it literally just started. I watched people just start splintering up into their new little tribes and we couldn't be a unified tribe anymore. And then all of these groups started vying for dominance of the focus of the larger group. And it turned into hatefulness and it, it created a lot of bigotry. And that's one of the things that I've been working on right now is that I, I felt I watched Occupy Detroit, first of all, as compared to Occupy Flint. Occupy Flint was just as diverse, just as many different kinds of people. But it was way more productive, way more unified. There was still internal strife, but none of it was based on you're a white male, so you shouldn't be allowed to talk more than two minutes in this conversation. None of that kind of crap was going on. It was, you know, just there was occasional personality clashes. But the difference was Occupy Flint was so much more productive, like we had better structures, we had better systems in place to help ourselves because we didn't have all these distractions making us constantly 
you know, look at everybody differently. And I noticed a shift in my own mentality. Like, so my kids are involved in combat sports and I took them to a boxing gym and this gym was so incredibly diverse that we even had a Palestinian and a Jew in the same gym, you know, so we had blacks, we had Asians. And then after I'd interact with these people, I would go back to that gym and then the whole experience was polluted with that nonsense, the dividing idea. Oh, well, that's a black person. That's a white person. That's a, you know, that kind of nonsense was never in, in the zeitgeist movement. It wasn't what Peter initially was about. It certainly was never about what Jacques Fresco was about. And ironically, he's the one who warned me. He's like, the reason that I don't advocate for racial activism or gender activism, he's like, it's not that these things are not important. He said that it's better, though, you know, that if we just raise everybody up simultaneously, you're not going to get the kickback that you would get if you try to tear one group down to bring about the equality you're looking for. But he also said that if you get caught up in that that way of thinking, you inevitably start to become what you sought out to oppose, which is what mm-hmm. I see right now with the critical race theory, anti-racism, all this stuff that they're putting out there that basically is now othering, which is ironically a term that they use too, you know, people who have white skin pigment, you know, and telling those people that, you know, basically they're not telling everybody, hey, look, you know, there's problems in the world. We need to fix it. All problems now are based on racism to those people. Mm. And the funny thing is, it was actually a socialist who taught me that the capitalist elite system uses race as just one card on the table, that it's not really their motive. Um, You know, there was a film called Capitalism and Other Kids Stuff. It was made by a socialist party guy in, in the U.K., He's the one who pointed out that race is not the issue. But now we're being told, no, no, race is the issue and gender and this. And until we put all these people in their place, that was the part that you you said something about the karma that I definitely feel that is that some of these people don't want equality. They want revenge Mm. for things that took place before they were even born in many cases on people who were not even responsible for the things in question. And what concerns me about it is that this tribalism Um, Andrew Yang talked about this. The more stressed you get, your IQ literally drops. So Mm -hmm. if we're more stressed, then we're more susceptible. And that kind of brings me around to where I think this is the perfect segue with the other element I had was when Chairman Mao was ruling China, if he felt like he needed to try to reaffirm himself, he would create a circumstance of chaos so that he could show up and rescue them from it to establish Mm -hmm. himself as the dominant one. And he used the Cultural Revolution to root out all of his enemies. And the Cultural Revolution, unfortunately, has some very close proximities in the way it was executed with what's going on now. And that became even more clear to me when I was um, watching Patrice Cullors, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, glowingly reviewing a book and comparing it to Mao's Little Red Book, which was literally the Little Red Book of the Inquisition that was the Cultural Revolution. You know, um, and there was one more thing, actually, I don't know if you're familiar with the guy. I think his name is Yuri Bezmanov, but he was a KGB defector. And mm-hmm. he showed up in the 80s to warn us about all these things that were going to happen. And now I've gone back and watched his lecture, which is so like, you know, it looks like it was recorded on VHS. That's how old it is. And I'm like, just kind of sitting there with my mouth open, like, wow, wow, this is exactly what's happening, especially in our education system. This destruction of. You know, like he literally said, people will be unable to come to rational decisions about things. Like that's like what he said. Like those are his words. He's like, they they won't be, you know, um, able to absorb correct information anymore. You know, and I, I, that was like, this all just plays back, you know, to, you know, I think, and that's the final point I'll make before I turn it back to you is that 
on the left right now, there's a concern about fascism, but they're blinding themselves to the fact that both left and right-leaning philosophies can absolutely lead to authoritarianism and totalitarianism. But they've been taught that, no, 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 that only comes from the right. That's literally in critical theory books. I've looked at it. That only authoritarianism can only come from the right. So they put themselves in the scenario where they advocate for censorship, advocate for deplatforming anybody who doesn't agree with them. They no longer engage with people who don't agree with them. And in fact, they're told not to. You know, it's better to just try to scare everybody into going along with what we do. And that's where the violence comes from and things like that. So anyway, that's Mm. where I'm at on that. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I I really appreciate what you're saying. And I feel that uh, one big element that leads to what you were saying, where people will have an issue coming to a, a logical or rational approach to, you know, what's even happening on planet Earth right now. And, uh, and that's technology. There's a big push with technology. And if you think about it, the same thing I was saying before, where we, we have this innate drive, especially as the men of the household, to want to check for potential um, danger for our family. So we're always scanning things. And this has become a big male thing to do head of the household is to watch the news all the time and see how the economy is doing and you know all these things that are that refer to safety for a male even in the you know downtimes which we haven't seen a downtime for the past couple of years now but a lot of that is the disinformation program that even William Casey was talking about he's a CIA director uh, you know in 1981 he said, we'll know our disinformation program is complete when everything the American public public believes is false. Right. So this is the former CIA director in the 1980s. Now, how much farther along are they and what other kinds of technologies do they have now that they didn't have back then? And you and I know exactly what we're talking about because we come from an era before the launch of the Internet. Right. And so even before smartphones and, you know, when we still had those dial rotary phones. Right. So the difference is now is that we're we're simply in a different informational world where it's communicated in different ways, whereas there was a lot more homogenous ways to look at information back in the day. There were fewer resources that you could even get your hands on readily get your hands on and then there was this blip at the beginning of the internet leading into up to 2008 9 10 where information and videos and things like that were being shared extremely uh widely and then all of a sudden i remember researching using google and things like that 10 years ago as as opposed to right now google is a completely different animal the top page or up to three pages on Google is sanctioned by authority information, right? right? You're not going to find like, it it almost seems like, Oh wow. Everyone's saying the same thing. Look, there's all these websites of people saying the same exact thing. It must be true. When in reality, they're changing history through educational systems and through information spreading. And so this is why I really do get into, I mean, like for your audience, like, For me personally, if you're not at least considering and reading what some alternative historians, um, theorists, 
whether that's conspiracy or not, if you're not at least looking at it with an open enough mind where you don't have some deep inner bias that's saying like, destroy it, destroy this idea, you know, like you, you got to look at it so people don't think that you're just burying your head in the sand, but look at it only with the intent to destroy it. It's wrong. And that's how we come to live in our own little tribes. And we love our echo chambers that, you know, the, the people that only tell us, you know, they, they echo the things that we've already heard and, you know, and then we'll see, hey, 15 different sources are saying the same thing. It must be true when really it all probably came from the same one source. And that one source, for the most for the most part, if it's being spread, spread widely through the Internet, is coming from a source that has agenda connected to it. So the bottom line behind all of this is I don't even think the solutions, if we're going to talk about solutions about um disinformation being spread everywhere the first thing people's minds go to are the lower end of the the low-hanging fruit of arguments is it the left's fault or is it the right's fault and then the people who think a little bit longer on it they think like is it controlled from the top and then the ones who think a little bit more esoteric on it they think well is it being controlled from the top but not the human top but like some um, whatever, some intelligent force, you know, because let's, let's say that an ideology creates a cultural caste, if you will, and that cultural caste will believe each other. So there's this thing about in what's basically been happening the past couple of years is if you, well, let me back up. Actually, it's been happening ever since colonization, which goes back a long, long time. But colonization, let's just go up all the way to the Native Americans and even the um, Hawaiians who are not Native Americans. And Hawaii technically is still the Hawaiian kingdom. It's not even a part of America. Um, It's just um, it's, it's illegal on the books the way it's even part of it. But how did they erase all that history? Well, for one, they stopped teaching it in school. They stopped allowing the Hawaiians and the Native Americans to learn their native tongue because words have power. Words spoken in their native tongue have a, I think, like a lineal or a genetic power that science is still yet to really come to understand. But the bottom line is, is what do you do? Groups are powerful unless they're intentionally disempowered demographics. And so the Native Americans, these were strong, proud people. How do you destroy them? Well, I'll tell you how they destroyed the Lakota. They studied them first. They found out what are the ceremonies that are most important to your culture. Oh, the keeping of the souls. All right. If anyone ever does the keeping of the souls, you'll be killed. And all the rest of their ceremonies were fine. But they had a prophecy saying like white buffalo woman um, said, if anyone, uh, if, if your, your nation can survive anything, um, but it cannot survive the keeping of the soul's ceremony after death. It cannot survive that if it's taken away. And that's the one thing that they did. And now, fast forward to today, we're being told that history is something different. Like I know the the history that I got when I was in school is different than history that kids nowadays are in school. And that's just 20 years. That's a lot of difference in two decades. And as well as that, words are having different meanings applied to them. 
So like many other words, um, but you know, you mentioned a, a couple of them, but like um, when you're looking at gender and when you're looking at these categories that are old and they, they have a lot of like force and effect behind them, when you start, start displacing the power and the meaning behind words and history, then people aren't connected to who they are, where they've come from. And we feel displaced. So I'll break it down in this um, category. Since 2020, so many people have left where they were living to find a place where they feel more safe. There have been a lot of exoduses from major cities. And there's a lot of people coming to here in Nashville, where I live, Austin, Florida. Um, There's people moving, just constantly moving. And what that's doing is that's displacing a form of comfortability and connection to the land. And I know this might sound like it's getting spiritual, but bear with me. If there is a an actual power that we get from the land, and, and this could also be done as a nomad, um, we're being displaced, not just geographically, but also um, socio-politically. So a lot of people are like, what the hell is going on with you know, my conservative camp or my liberal camp or, right, there's a lot of people that are just like, man, something big is happening and I don't know if I stand in the same place or if I have the same beliefs that I used to have. They're starting to splinter. They're starting to scatter. And so the power in that, if there is a small group of people that's pushing for this, is you get people to to dissociate from one another because groups are powerful. The only groups you want people to gather in are groups that are spreading disempowering messages and doing so with an air about them that is um, filled with like loathing, resentment, disrespect. I've had enough. And you know what? We've been disadvantaged long enough that even violence is okay. And so we're getting all these kinds of concepts pushed into us because of what's happening in longer cycles of time. And I guess the, you know, the last thing that I'll say here before going off onto a completely different tangent is there's this book called The Fourth Turning. And it talks about these 80 to 90 year cycles. And it takes 80 to 90 years for a crisis period to reach another crisis period. So the crisis period would be called the winter. And then there's a high, which is right after the crisis. And that's the spring. And then there's an awakening. That's the summer. Then there's an unraveling. That's the fall back to the winter crisis. And this every 80 to 90 years, if you look back 80 to 90 years from right now, because it feels like we're in a crisis for sure. If you look back 80 to 90 years, you'll be smack dab in the middle of World War II and the Great Depression. Same thing. You go back another 80 to 90 years. We're talking the Civil War. Another 80 to 90 years, the Revolutionary War. And even before that, before American history, there was the glorious revolution in Europe. And what this is basically pointing to is that there's something deeper in cycles of time that's playing out again right now. And what happens is kind of the same thing that you mentioned with the Occupy um, movements, because there's not just one. Right. We all like to think that the, you know, the Occupy movement, it was one thing. No, it was 
many, many, many different people in different areas with different contexts, different solutions, different ways of going about it. But basically, they're just occupying a space. So that was the beginning of this. Well, no, there wasn't the, the very beginning of the crisis period that we're currently in right now, but it's very, very specific. So the book, The Fourth Turning, came out in 1997, and they said sometime around 2005, give or take a couple years, maybe 2008, right around when um, uh, senior baby boomers start picking up their Social Security checks, there's going to be a financial event that's going to set off a series of action steps by the grassroots. And if you can hijack those action steps, then it it will basically lean towards your... Um, demographic of power. And so 2008 comes along and sure enough, that's the housing crash. And that was absolutely set up to fail exactly the way that it was. I won't get into details right now, but all the way back pre 2000, there was Catherine Austin Fitz calling the very same thing that happened as well as the authors of the fourth turning calling this back in 97. So anyway, in 2008, you have the housing crash. A couple years later, there's Occupy Wall Street because these uh, inciting incidences during a crisis period will cause for action. But if there's an inciting period, uh, uh, like let's say an inciting incident in the previous period, which is an unraveling, then it causes anxiety. If there's one during an awakening, then it causes for rebellion. And if there's one during the spring, the high, then it causes for unity and congealing and synergy. So right now, if you can hijack that process, that's kind of like an archetypal process of like how people typically are during this cycle of time. And so what we're in the middle of right now, they said in that book, 2020 will be a pivotal year and the crisis period will not last any longer than 15 to 20 years. So roughly by 2028, the whole thing will be over. And what does that mean? It means that in every past fourth turning, every past crisis period, you have a huge economic transformation. So the last time it was the uh, New Deal, Roosevelt. Well, now we're talking about the Green New Deal. And there's all this catastrophic rhetoric around um, lots of things, like conspiracy um, around the um, whatever the economy changing around the um, the UFOs and the UAPs around AI around the climate. There's all these catastrophic narratives being stuck into our minds, but it's basically all unanimous. Something bad is coming in the near future. We need to protect against it. We need to all come together. And there's all these tropes, like with the UFO UAP thing. It doesn't seem right. It it seems like really, this is how it's going to start. Like, you know, it's, it's basically by getting the 60 minutes, these little videos showing us these things, it makes it feel like it now that they're talking about Joe Biden's, you know, declining mental state. To me, everyone's just almost falling in line with the, the first most immediate concept that comes to their mind. Like, oh yeah, let's, let's now make fun of Joe Biden. Well, for one, when did we start making fun of people with cognitive decline? And for two, doesn't it seem a little, I don't know, convenient? You know, people were calling this exact thing happening six months ago. 
But nobody seemed to care, especially not the mainstream media, until now. Now everyone's starting to talk about it. And it almost seems like it's planned or staged like this. So the last thing that I'll say is we are in the middle of what is called a crisis winter period. And by 2028, if history keeps repeating itself, not only will the economic state be completely transformed, but in every previous winter period, the most devastating weapons of war are used. So the very previous one was atomic blasts, right? So now what is it? We're not seeing any of that, but there is AI. And now two thirds of almost every single tweet with a link in it is a bot. It's not a human. And this the same goes for um, all the other say, uh, social media sites. You know, there's also sports broadcasting, not broadcasting, but the statistics and stuff and blogs, they're written by AI. So AI is taken over in ways that we don't even understand yet. And this is why I go back to that William Casey quote, we'll know our disinformation program is complete when everything the American public believes is false. We're not meant to just believe that there is a fixed immovable reality outside of us that we need to all conform around. We're literally being broken apart at the seams as a culture. This is the Marcus Tullius Cicero's quote to a T saying, a nation can survive its fools, even the ambitious, but it cannot survive treason from within. So we are literally, our power is being taken from us in ways that we're not even aware of. And I think number one, that's we're not allowed to assemble and all of our communication is monitored and censored. So the way we could come together is being highly restricted. But here's the way that I'll end it. I have a metaphysical view on this. I think that deep down inside, even the most reductionist ways of looking at what reality, if reality could be talked about as one singular, immovable, reproducible external phenomena, not just a shared hallucination, then then what we're really talking about is splintering people's ability to arrive at a cohesive and therefore harmonious, uh, culturally harmonious view of what reality even is. So it goes deeper than disinfo, misinfo campaigns. It goes deeper than that. Literally, it is a mental virus like a virus that attacks your computer and begins shutting it down systematically. But this isn't a virus that's meant to kill us or make us you know, mentally retarded. It's meant to make us subservient. It's very obvious when you look at it um, in, with the right lenses. And I think the metaphysical aspect of it is where the, the beauty and yes, I do believe there's a beauty behind everything that I'm saying right now that's happening in the world is inevitably it's going to weed out the people who are just looking for safety in numbers. And those are the ones who do not perform critical thinking at all. It's not that they can't. It's that they choose not to because they feel safety in numbers is a safer bet than venturing out into the fringes of society and speaking un comfortable, you know, different kinds of truth. So I think the real solution here is authenticity and speaking your own truth and not trying to pretend like we all need to think the same way, look the same way. I mean, come on, let's celebrate our diversity. We're black, white, yellow, red for a reason. We have different 
backgrounds and, and cultural and familial context for a reason, because there's beauty that can come from this. There's ways that we can actually take everything that we're fighting about right now and flip it on its head. But guess what? There's no externalized um, sanctioned authoritative source that's going to give you the tools to flip it all on their head. We're only given through most media outlets the tools to make things worse, never better. Just pay attention to news. You'll hardly ever heal, hear any solution that doesn't disadvantage some other group. Even if it seems like it's a solution, it's, it's advantaging you, the listener. It, it usually comes on the heels of looking down upon, hating and fearing some other group. And therefore, they're not humans. They hate your freedom. So dehumanize them and look at them as the enemy that's unforgivable. So this is where I think the metaphysical pro approaches need to be brought into more pragmatic conversation. Well, um, and I'm not opposed to that. And the funny thing is, is it occurred to me is I just literally just watched this. Uh, there was a study done that actually shows like a scientific basis for what you're discussing so far as like this idea that there are cycles in social issues. Um, there was a experiment that was done, I think it's called Universe 25, but like the gentleman in question was testing social theories with with mice and rats in different circumstances where he would create basically a habitat for them, you know, and he would experiment basically with different, like, okay, what happens if they all have food? What happens if they have, like, everything has been cared for. That's not the issue. So now let's watch the social development of mice and rats. And basically he could, he could con continually replicate the same cycles over and over again, depending on, you know, how things went. So in, for example, um, like one of his methods basically led to basically eventually that um, civilization of mice, so to speak, would die if you did the following things. And it always seemed to take the same amount of time, um, you know, so there is even actually like a, you know, a grounded science basis on the concept that there are social like cycles to everything. And it occurred to me, Ironically, somebody sent me a uh, brief documentary about the film Dirty Harry, which is like a violent cop film. But mm -hmm. what the documentary was about was just about the political situation at the time. This was one of my viewers. And what she pointed out was like, man, doesn't this sound familiar? And I'm like, wow. You know, and I go watch this. And this uh, that film was made in like the early 70s, you know. Um, you know, and it's like it was. It was like this. It was as if like that we were in, you know, in a cycle, you know, where things were moving around and then coming back around to the same concept. Now, I did want to talk a little bit about some of the things you said earlier. Like, when it comes to the Internet, you know, like you said, we existed in a time before the Internet, and current beings don't even understand what that's like. Um, I think that's part of the disconnect between these two generations. Everybody always says that the previous generation, you know, dislikes the next generation, and, that, and there is something to that. But I've been making... Uh, a statement recently that there's more to it this time. And unfortunately, all the old codgers always say that too. But there are some drastic differences in the way that we are being raised now as compared to the way, you know, the people were raised before. And I see it um, even just altering my own ability. Like, you know, for instance, I've noticed that my, my ADHD actually got worse by being on the internet so much during the lockdown period um, because, you know, it was hard for me to hold on to one thought for a long period of time. I've noticed in my videos and my podcasts that, um, people don't have the patience to just sit around and listen to two people talk for two hours like they used to. There are still people who do, but not very often. You know, I do documentaries, and um, sometimes, like, you know, there's, there's a certain 
group of my listeners or viewers who will watch them, and then there are some who might watch five minutes of it, and they just don't have the mental capacity. So there's definitely something changing in the way that our brains are functioning, and I think that's a um, a long-time consequence that we don't even know the full benefit or negative of it You know, in the long run. Um, I've noticed, for example, I lost the ability to just sit and read a book. At this point, I can't read a book unless I'm in the bathroom or something where I couldn't get up and do something else. I can listen to audiobooks, but I only do that generally if I'm, like, say, in my car. That's, like, the perfect time for me to do an audiobook. Because my kids are in sports, sometimes we drive for hours, I'll throw an audiobook in. But I wanted to get back to one of the things about the difference in perspective is that the current activists that I interact with now they can't even really fathom what it is that, you know, as far as, like, the dangers of what they're doing and what they're getting involved in and the sense of history about what it came even just before them. You know, and we thought the Internet was going to be turned off. Like back when I was watching your films, maybe some Alex Jones films and stuff like that. I'm like, man, we need to we need to download this stuff on our computers because eventually they're just going to turn it off. And then I kind of came to the conclusion later. I had a feeling like, wait a minute. No, I don't think that's what they're going to do. I think they're going to figure out how to use it. You know, and you talked about the Google algorithms. I did a couple of shows about some documentaries that came out um, like the creepy line. Um, you know, that were all about, you know, basically whistleblowers coming forward from Google and Facebook and such to come out and say, our algorithms are designed to keep you on your phones and your computers as long as possible so that you watch ads. What keeps you on your phone the longest? Well, that would be stuff that either pisses you off or stuff that reinforces everything you already believe and helps your, you basically reinforce your echo chamber bubble, your force field, you know, and stuff that's outside of that, you don't care for that. So the algorithm doesn't show you that. Now, they're making the point that this is all due to profit, and I think that there is definitely something to be said about ad revenue. But it occurs to me that not even long ago, actually, the mainstream media reported that the Air Force got caught making a program that, that basically literally creates false um, Internet personas to shift public opinion. And the Air Force's um, re, you know, issue of that was to say, oh, well, don't worry, we only use this in Middle Eastern countries. You know, and I'm like, yeah, sure you do. Um, you know, but in an African country, this is one of the things that got brought up by a creepy line, and I feel bad for not remembering it, but there was one country where Facebook was the internet for them because all they pretty much had was internet through their phones, and Facebook was the only way they could interact. And the Facebook algorithm that tends to end up causing people to be even further against each other literally caused a genocide because the, you know, the two political oppositions got so nasty with one another, and they were all only put together in their own echo chambers that continually reinforce, we hate them, you know, we love each other, we hate them, but we love each other, you know, until it eventually went over to the boiling point, and then one culture, like, acted to try to destroy another. And these are things that I don't think people realize are influencing them, especially when you try to talk to people. Like, one of the things that got me back involved was the Kyle Rittenhouse incident, and it's not, and I want to be clear, when I bring this up as being important, it's not just about Kyle Rittenhouse, one kid, you know, getting in a situation where he felt he had to shoot people to defend themselves. It's the amount of bullshit that got circulated on both sides of the aisle about what took place that was demonstrably provable to be incorrect just by watching the video yourself. And I thought, and I watched the two tribes line up with their version of what happened. And, you know, because I kind of lean to the left, I'm like, no, he didn't just shoot into the crowd. But there are still people saying that now. You know, he didn't do like, in fact, there's all kinds of different aspects of it that people believe that are incorrect, you know, and my problem with it wasn't even about, look, you don't have to like the kids politics. 
you know, I don't even know if I like his politics. That's not the point. But there's no necessity to lie about it, you know, and that kind of comes back to even like Trump. I have a bunch of just by an accident. There's kind of a funny thing that happened to me because my kids got involved in the sport of wrestling. For whatever reason, there's a bunch of really heavy conservatives involved in wrestling. And so I posted something on my non-activist account once about Bernie Sanders, and then it just blew up with all these people that I didn't realize were were Republicans, you know, who were like negatively speaking about it, you know. But um, one of the things I, I learned was that, um, you know, they have their own echo chambers, you know, they're recirculating their own information and, and they're and like you try to tell them the truth and it's just preposterous to them. Well, why would they think anything else? Because if our reality is only what we see on our phone, then all we do see is whatever makes our bubbles look better and whatever makes the opposition look worse. You know, and this situation I'm, I'm concerned is like really breaking down society at its whole. But when you, when we, you and I remember we talked, you do want to come back to solutions. And one of the things that Jock Fresco pointed out, and this is one of the problems I have, especially with what's going on the left right now in the university system, is that critical analytical thinking, understanding logical fallacies, being able to break down this information for yourself is so important. These used to just be basic building blocks that people would understand to be able to have conversations. And if you don't know what a logical fallacy is, then you don't know when somebody's trying to manipulate you, whether it's the most common one, which is like ad hominem. I'm just going to attack you as a person so that people listening to this conversation don't listen to your point of view, don't take you seriously. There's a whole bunch of other ones. Ad hominem is probably one of the most common. you know. But if you don't have the ability to do that, we are now getting to the point where we can't just settle for watching the news because the news is so much crap now. Um, it's become entertainment in its own way. I mean, it's getting to the point where the news is as much the news as pro wrestling is actually wrestling. And it's not, it's, it's theater. It's designed specifically to try to cater to a specific audience. They don't even try anymore, you know, and that's, that was another thing the Kyle Rittenhouse incident revealed to me is that you watch the MSNBC version and then you watch the Fox version. You'd think that you were talking about two completely different incidents that have nothing to do with each other. And we need to be able to get back to being able to rationally analyze things. And you, you call it your intuition. I remember watching one of your videos recently about this, and I shared it on, like, on all my mediums because you just did one about fake news. Well, what concerns me is that there's an effort right now to label rational and critical thinking and the emphasis on the scientific method as whiteness. And whiteness is this amorphic concept of, like, all of the evil in the world can be broken down to this. It actually starts to remind me of listening to Hitler talk about Jews. But the reason why it bothers me more than anything else is even about like whether or not it's white people or black people. It's that they're using whiteness as their unifying bad guy to be able to get everybody to gang up on it. And there was a moment when I was watching a documentary by a guy named Benjamin Boyce who was paying attention to what happened to Brett Weinstein when he was at the Evergreen State College. And there's a moment where basically he's just basically being witch hunted by this huge crowd that's just being directed entirely by emotion. If he tries to reason with them, they just talk over top of him. There, there is no rationality. There is we are right. You are wrong. We are good. You are bad. You know, so anyway, at one point he gets off by himself with just a couple students and he starts talking to them and he has this very rational conversation. He's starting to make some headway. Not only did the witch hunt crowd not like that and try to come over and break it up. But there's a moment in particular where one of the students says, you need to stop demanding that people use logic and reason and white forms of communication. And that clicked in my head because on the Smithsonian Museum, 
of, um, black, of African-American history, they at one point had a flyer up that identified critical rational thinking and emphasis on the scientific method as whiteness, negative aspects of white culture. And they racialize it because I guess that's it's easy to kind of unify people along those points. And the other thing I've noticed is that if you do racialize things, that activates that that othering of the tribe instinct in your head. You start to become very defensive, you know, and, you, and it's the same thing with the gender stuff. I came to a realization once that all of the bordering on racist thoughts I've ever had in the recent years came from interacting with these activists, not from interacting with people of color in my life. And the same thing is true with feminists. All of the like, close to misogynist thoughts I've ever had didn't come from interacting with women in my life. They came from interacting with feminists. So if those are the movements that are supposed to be trying to fix everything, you know, they're doing the wrong job, which is why, and um, actually this guy's going to be on my show tomorrow. And if you haven't checked him out, you should. His name is Daryl Davis. He's a black man who attends Ku Klux Klan rallies and humanizes himself to them. And then those people just abandon racism and it works. You know, that's like the kind of like, you know, disarming the negative thought like a bomb. But when he went and met with Black Lives Matter in Baltimore, they threatened him to never return. They didn't want anything to hear about. They like, why are you talking to them? Like, you know, they because there are people who seem to benefit from keeping us fighting each other. That they don't want us to have these dialogues. They don't want peace. They they because there are too many people. There's multiple motives I could get into about what does that. People can check out my channel for videos about that stuff. I don't want to drag this conversation into it. But at the end of the day, the critical analytical thinking part is being robbed, but is being taken from us. We are being told that this is evil, that this isn't something you need. And in fact, if you do it, if you don't just follow what we're saying, you know, then they come down on you hard. And it reminds me so much of religious persecution. When the church was trying to maintain power over, you know, then, then that's when scientists were getting burned at the stake for heresy, you know, for things like saying, what, you said the world is round? You know, I believe that gentleman got in prison for his whole life or something to that effect. I'd have to look it up. But Anyway, if we're going to get through this, we need to be able to think critically and we need to be able to stop othering each other and actually just go ahead and become part of the same tribe so that we can move forward together. We need to recognize these divide and conquer um, tactics and just not fall into them. Don't fall into that trap. You know, the one thing I'll end on this was there was a moment in the zeitgeist movement when it was at its apex. It's kind of waning now. But we would have international meetings with literally people all over the world. In these giant TeamSpeak meetings, there are so many colors represented, so many cultures represented, and it, there was no issue of this because we all followed what Jacques Fresco said of don't get too focused on the racial gender stuff, just become one people. And we had such great productive conversations. And now when I try to talk with people about any of those things, the conversations are not productive at all. Who does that benefit? Because it's certainly not us. Go ahead. Well, yeah, no, I, I, I feel what you're saying. And in many ways, you know, the, again, we're, we're not taught how to make the situation better. And therefore we need to, that's a personal responsibility for everyone who, who at least knows there's a better way than the way that's being laid out for us, because it's, you know, nothing is ever given to us for free. You know, so the Internet and ideology, the way that they are as you're born into it, these aren't things that are given for free. They're given because it channels power in a very specific way. 
everybody who believes in a specific thing is channeling energy in a very specific ideological way. And now we're also seeing it in ways of, you know, I think there's, I'll be very careful with how I say this, but there's false awakenings out there. And that doesn't mean bad. It's, I, I think actually false awakenings are catalysts that lead to actual awakening. And awakening is such an overused term because people say that they're awake or woke. And really there is no static state of awakeness. You know, so um, what I'm seeing is that for, for the most part, the ideologies that we're fit into and the false awakenings that are channeling new, uh, new energy is there was a conspiracy movement towards the end of 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 that really woke people up. It wasn't just fear, 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 fear. It was really waking people up to oh my goodness, this makes more sense to me. It makes more sense. And even though a lot of it is a hard pill to swallow, it makes sense because it, it reinvigorates who I, why I think I'm even here. And I know there's a lot of people that don't believe that there is a reason why you're here. And I don't believe that, again, we're given a reason or a purpose to be alive. I think we invent that. It's a part of our ingenuity and a part of our creativity. Um, but things like Flat Earth, things like Q, um, there's going to be more of them. And these are centralized conspiracies. And you'll know them by uh, – and the, the Flat Earth thing is, is not really centralized. It's centralized around a concept but not around – like the Q thing is, oh, there's people. There's specific people. And only they know what's really up. And all you got to do is trust the plan. And this is how I know that the left and the right at the very top are after the same thing and really on the same team, if not the same people specifically. Absolutely. Is that, you know, there's people who are like, you know, man, you know, if Trump had only gotten into office, you know, ex you know, um, rather than Biden, things would be different. And really, this is where I start to show that, like, listen, even though things even though the rhetoric of the past four years prior to Biden felt different and it felt like we were on the right track. And yes, you can point to tiny things that, that were different with the economy and all these little things, but those things happen all the time throughout cycles of economic history anyway. So really what I'm saying is that the, there are false awakenings that are, I believe designed by intelligence agencies if not also by AI and bolstered by AI, meaning the types of you were talking about, like intentionally misleading ways of viewing the Rittenhouse um, thing. Just take a look at when Trump got into office, everyone was like, everything is, you know, Facebook, they ruined it. Everything is disinformation. Everything is misinformation. And everything Trump is doing and, and calling the left is exactly what he's doing on the right. And now, guess what? Same conversation, just flip-flopped on the other side. Yep. And it really, if you take a look at a lot of the people who went on TED Talks to talk about disinformation in 2017, their mouths are shut now. But what they're talking, what they talked about is more true today than it was back then. So the interesting thing is there's democratized ways of creating synthetic and false media as well so you were even saying there's there's the video out there 
of the Rittenhouse incident. There's videos. And yet still, news channels have the wrong story. And they're actively saying things when it's verifiable that what they're saying is wrong. Here's another layer of complexity to that. There is so much synthetic media out there where it's edited or completely digitally doctored to where people are saying something that they didn't say. They, they, you know, there was this, I think, um, uh, a journalist on the right or, or somebody on the right under the Trump administration that yanked a microphone out of a CNN, um, uh, whatever, um, uh, an anchor, a correspondent's hand. When really there was original footage that it was just a handoff. It was a normal handoff, but they sped up the footage of the grab to make it look like it was disrespectful. And that's all it really takes. It's these little tiny tweaks, and that's all it really takes. And so I think the real solution is getting out of the weeds and getting out of some of the the need for specifics of data points and videos and proof and evidence that's external to us that came to us and arrived to us through our technology getting out of the need of arguing those little things because nowadays it's the time that we waste on things that don't matter that keep us from the potential of actually making headway in real solutions and a lot of it is i know that i do a news show but what i the the whole intention is I'll tell you about things that are happening in the news and then I'll always bring it back to that timeless thing that exists within humans, which is do something good with it. Like transmute the energy of the nonsense, the noise, the, I don't believe that. So I'm going to oppose it. I'm going to be anti that. And that's what people on the left and right think they're doing to benefit the situation is becoming anti the other side. And that both of that is that left-right trap that people get stuck in. And strangely, man, I, I remember back in 2008, 2009, people were waking up to, man, left and the right, left wing, right wing, same bird. It's, it's all controlled by the same right. intention. And then all of a sudden Trump comes along and everyone is back to their political leanings. And it's not Trump. Again, I, I don't find it useful to blame him specifically I take a look at the times and say, this is by design and it predates Trump. It predates even Bush W, right? You know, it predates all of that. And so the real solutions come towards when there's all this nonsense and reasons for people to distrust and dislike others, the other that you're talking about. How do you bring harmony to that specific situation? I don't believe it's by getting into the weeds of the conversation. That's more or less like taking a look at um, a movie as how can you convince somebody to believe what you believe? Whereas when I make movies, I try to move people in an inspiring way because I know that once they become inspired, they're not going to be inspired to replicate what I did or try and do the same and repeat what I did what they'll do is they'll be inspired to become more of who they already are. So it's stepping into your own authenticity and looking for ways to take the noise outside of you and turn it into a harmonious thing, whatever that is. And that could come from somebody's child, you know, is murdered and they have to 
face them in trial. And some people, the, the strongest of them, they realize that the only way they're ever going to get sleep again is if they forgive that person that murdered their child. Like imagine, imagine what it takes to forgive who you think is unforgivable. Because people are like Bill Gates, Fauci, there's a million names of heads on chopping blocks that news outlets gave us. Who are we supposed to hate? The, the left will tell you some people and the right will tell you different people, but there's always people to hate. I say that the real solution is finding a way to forgive without removing accountability. That's the big key is not removing accountability because there are people that need to be held accountable. There are institutions and ideologies that need to be held accountable, but it's a sophisticated nuance. Most people are like when they watch the news, they are left angry and they know exactly who they're angry at. And it's all those people or those people. And so to me, it's, it's not something that externally needs to happen. And this is why so many people find what I'm about to say metaphysical and woo-woo, but it's actually the most practical thing you can put into action is when you watch the news or you hear people talking about the world and they're all, they got you know sand in their panties and they're all up in arms about something. The best thing you can actually do is not get into your language center of your brain and try and change them with words and intellect. It's actually by calming your nervous system down, letting your voice calm into a, a different groove and talking from a different space. And if you can see the nuance that I'm talking about is yes, the words matter and yes, the logic matters, but most people, they don't realize that even when you're speaking about the right things, you can rub people the wrong way because of your voice. You know, like a lot of people who are into conspiracy cannot stand Alex Jones because of his voice and how angry he gets. And Foster Gamble, who made the Thrive films, he and Kimberly, Kimberly actually coached him because when he was talking all the conspiracy stuff in his film, Kimberly was like, listen, what you're going to do is if you talk about the problems in that way is you're going to make people feel that you yourself have not found the way through. You haven't found a solution. If you had found a real solution that you, you would be talking from a space and your voice and your body language would reflect the confidence of the way through this mess. But if you're talking like Alex Jones, you may be talking about the exact same world scenarios and global domination agendas, but you're going to be talking about it in a tone of voice that makes people feel like, oh my God, this guy knows everything. He's so informed and yet he's still screaming and angry. What, what, like, what kinds of humans are screaming and angry and yelling at you with all this urgency and anger and frustration? It's people who have not done their inner work. And a lot of people think, oh, so you're talking like spirituality and Buddhism and self-help and Tony Robbins and inner work like that. In a way, you can kind of put it in those categories. But what I'm really talking about is when somebody triggers you, you take a look at like, you know, a, a, you know, a traditional guru, right? The, the most iconic type of guru. And somebody tries to get under their skin with a comment. And what do they do? In very, very practical terms, they just reveal the hidden truth in it, such as the, you know, 
after Buddhism came along and, and Hinduism started, people started converting from Hinduism to Buddhism. There's this parable of a father that uh, has a, a, a son who converted from Hinduism to Buddhism. And so he confronts the Buddha and says, Buddha, you, you know, you're a low life. You took my beautiful child and you like um, infected him with your new ideology and your new ways and all of that. And he just basically berated the Buddha. And today, by today's standards, that would turn into a Facebook trolling, you know, thread. What the Buddha did in this parable, and again, this is a timeless thing. Let's not worry about did it actually happen or not. It's just the essence of the message. The Buddha said, excuse me, sir, when somebody tries to offer you a gift and you don't accept it, who does that gift then belong to? And the guy was caught off guard and he was like, what? And he was just like, please, just entertain me. If, if somebody refuses a gift, who does that gift belong to? And the man, the father said, well, the person who's trying to give the gift. And the Buddha said, you're right. I do not accept your gift of hatred. And that was a simple way of revealing that I don't have to take on any of the names or the slurs or the concepts that you're placing on me. I know who I am. So that's a way of transmuting it without having to get into, uh, 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 no, I saw that video and it didn't actually go down like that. And it gets us into this thing that people don't even feel like being mature. You're talking about these news stations that were talking about a video that happened one way and they're actively giving um, alternative ways that it happened. The reason why that's allowed, not allowed, I'm sorry, the reason why people allow themselves to do that a lot of the times is because it's even close to the surface. They're not looking for the truth. They feel more powerful when they can get in the other people's skin, when they can get underneath the other people's skin. Absolutely. This is why I think the most empowering thing we can do is contact our nervous system, calm ourselves down and speak as if we actually are confident about what we're speaking about, that it is a harmonious solution. Because if we do, then we'll realize that if we can't get into that, then we're using concepts, ideas, and tactics that are only meant to destabilize harmony and to segregate people from one another, which is how we lose all of our power in the first place. I don't know if you've ever seen this. There's this old video of John Cleese. Um, It's called John Cleese on Extremism. It's just a clip of a larger thing he did. And it's funny is that you could easily translate it to, to now. And what he was discussing was like, you know, seriously, though, you know, we've been talking a lot about extremism, but we never talk about its advantages. And this is a parody. But, you know, he goes on to say, you know, if you have an extremist view, then you can just be a total, you know, nasty person to other people. And you can justify it to yourself that it's all because, you know, there's just such terrible persons and everything would be fine if those people were gone. And then, you know, he pointed out that this is something that happens to both the right and the left. I call them like rage addicts. Like you said about the thing about getting under people's skin, it's like it seems like people like they get into it and it defines who they are to be angry at the other to the point that it's like an addiction, you know, and, you know, he pointed out is that it makes you feel good. Those are actually the words he used, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, that if you can figure out a way to, you know, to fight the man, so to speak, you know, and which man are you going with, you know, and then like he points out that both, you know, sides have their own lists and you could add a couple numbers, names to the list as far as like, say the right wing hates Antifa and BLM, the left wing hates 
MAGA hat wearer. So like you could add more actors to the situation. Um, but it still comes down to the same thing. And I, and I run into those people doing that. And, it, you know, that was another point that you said that I've been, this is another thing that I kind of came to the conclusion about that I felt compelled to share with as many people as I could, but it was this. Have you ever noticed that our politics are packaged? Like you're expected to follow your package to the letter, you know, and I've seen people line up according to their package on everything including elements of their belief structure that don't even have anything to do with each other. So let me give you an example. I'm pro-gun rights, but I'm also pro-welfare. Where the hell do I fit? I don't. And if I talk about either of those things, people immediately assume I'm in the other tribe. Mm -hmm. Because to them, you can't be that. You can't be pro-welfare and pro-gun, even though guns and welfare have nothing in common. But we've been conditioned to think, no, no, you have to fit into these pig troughs that we're being driven down as they slaughter our minds, you know, it's either column A or it's column B. You know, the only thing that the two groups agree on is that they don't want any third parties to get together and offer alternatives. This is all stuff actually that George Washington was talking about at his farewell address because he didn't want there to be political parties. Um, I did a whole show about that. People can check that out on my channel. But the point is, is that it's not even a natural way of thinking. Um, you know, and that's something that I've been trying to say to people. And this actually comes back to like when you talk about forgiving people. Um, I think we also need to forgive people or even just have kind of a sympathetic, empathetic view of the fact that people may disagree with you for very genuine and real reasons, you know, that you might want to listen to. And it doesn't mean you have to agree with them. We have to forgive people from having a different mindset. We have to forgive people for thinking differently you know, and, and we're, we don't do that anymore. And we're told not to do that anymore. And we're told that all of our problems will go away if we can just eliminate everybody who doesn't think like us. And ironically, <laughs> I see a lot of people who are pushing against fascism who are the ones who ironically are pushing for things like censorship, which anybody who studies fascism knows is that that's like at the cornerstone of how censorship maintains its control over a society is censorship. You know, be, be ability to control the words, control the dialogue, you know, and they don't, you know, especially the left at this point is that they don't understand that the only reason there is a leftist movement in the United States is because of freedom of speech. Because if people like J. Edgar Hoover had had their way, all the communists would have been run out of this country years ago, you know, and but they've become comfortable with it. I've actually also kind of come to that point about censorship. Censorship is not just a concept. It's like a mentality. You get it in your head that you can just go ahead and start turning off anything you don't like, and more to the point, trying to force other people to turn it off if you don't like it. Um, you know, they don't. They've lost the ability to debate. Um, there was a really good rant by uh, he's like it's a parody guy named Jonathan Pye where he talks about President Trump how and why. He's basically going over the different reasons why Hillary Clinton lost. And one of the reasons he said was, like, not everybody who voted for Donald Trump was a racist or a sexist or you just sit around spitting labels at everybody and then you wonder how they're going to react. You can get them to quietly obey you because they're sick of you screaming at them, you know, but then you think you've won when the truth is they get in the voting booth and then they vote the opposite way to what you thought they would. You know, they think that if they can get people to be silent on the Internet, that means that they, everybody's accepted their ideology. But... To get back to like solutions on it, I feel like there is a there is a serious effort that is being made right now, and that's one of the things I stumbled on when I was reading books about critical race theory. And this is the ones that they're their books. Like I'm not watching Fox News to figure it out. 
was that they want, for example, people to be more divided by their race, to be hyper-conscious about their race. And then when you get into the gender theory stuff, which goes along the same line, no, no, we need to be more hyper-aware of all of our differences. You know, and the result of that is a group of people that will literally assign themselves a hierarchy. This is what would happen at Occupy. You know, who has the most, you know, intersectional oppression points, you know, and now the new hierarchy is whoever comes from the most, you know, um, harmed backgrounds will now do all of the talking. And anybody who comes from the least harmed backgrounds is not allowed to talk. And if anybody from a more harmed background says something, you know, then they can automatically win the argument with anybody who say white or male or whatever, even if what they said is completely irrational, you know, um, we have to get away from these kinds of divisive ways of thinking. It's not good for the right. It's not good for the left, you know, and that's where I feel like we are losing our ability to be able to communicate as human beings. And I think that if we can't figure out a way to fix that, none of the rest of this is even going to matter. Like, I used to be an advocate, for example, for direct democracy systems, consensus decision-making, you know, and we use consensus decision-making at Occupy, and it worked beautifully. But we can't have that if we're all just irrational, angry mobs that can't communicate with each other. Mm. No such decision-making can function in that situation if we can't sincerely express each other. That's also why I said about, you know, being, being, uh, forgiving people for having a different opinion. There are so many people that contact me privately about my show and tell me that my show is helping them because they feel like they are all alone and they don't dare speak up because they don't want the backlash that's going to come for having a different opinion. And that's what, you know, this has to be overcome. We have to be able to get to a point where if you see somebody who doesn't agree with you, this is like something Derek Jensen said on a show. He's like, if you don't like somebody's book, write a better book. If you don't like their argument, make a better argument. But stop trying to, like, you know, one-up each other in, like, a dominance or power, you know, struggle. That's what information is now. It's about power. It's not about truth. It's about, well, my side won. You know, that was one more allegory that I'll give you that um, kind of popped in my head once is that I noticed on the left, I would occasionally get people who would agree with me that we were screwing up in some way, but they don't want to talk about it publicly. And it reminds me of, like, say, being in gym class when you were in middle school. Maybe you're playing volleyball. And the coach called a point for your team, and you know it was wrong because you saw that the ball was actually out. But you just don't say anything because you don't want your team to lose. You know, and yeah. that, that's not a method for truth. That's a method for dominance. So go ahead. Well, no, you're definitely right. There's this tug of war between you know every every massive change that we can see in our written about history, um, which there are a lot of red flags in. But, you know, let's just say that it's it's there. Every um, massive hurdle and change that we've ever faced has come from two sources of force and power that are jockeying for dominance. And it always ends in the same way. A lot of people have to lose. And a lot of people feel disadvantaged. And, you know, when, when we're talking about, like, colonization, what's strange is people forget that white people were colonized, too. Um, it just happened so long ago that we, we have no tribal roots for us to really remember. You know, so there is something that we could even say is um, at least kind of beautiful about Native Americans, African Americans, um, 
basically every other demographic out there, there seems to be a closer connection to who and what they were and where they come from that that's closer to their genetic memory, if you will. And for most of us, like we, we are just the face of the oppressor, but it's not, it's not a color thing. It's really something that happened so long ago. And it's a specific ideology that began taking over that the world is um, commodifiable and we're still moving into this and that everything is commodifiable. And when you get this economic concept in it this is why i kind of like you know charles eisenstein um not specifically as an economist but when you take a look at he he brings the idea of what is the gift like each and every human has a gift to bring but also we didn't earn the sun we didn't earn the food that comes from the ground you know uh comes from the earth we didn't earn the water it's a gift it's all a gift and one thing that's it's being turned into is, I mean, how long ago was it when people were laughing at the idea of bottling water and buying water, right. Right? right? You know, so this is where the commodifiability, even in India, is being pushed out when Monsanto, Bill Gates, and a lot of other um, groups are coming in there and commodifying the land. They're like, this land is a resource. It's a precious good. And you're your leaders are able to sell it to us and we're able to come in, tell you how to farm, tell you how to, you know, harvest, tell you how to use that land. And guess what? If there's anything unique, we're just going to strip mine it and we're going to send it out to our country and we'll give you some money. But what that really means is we'll put you in a monetary system that systematically disempowers the masses and overly empowers the few. And so it really is, this is an ideological thing that begins to change the world. So the way that I think, you know, when we're talking about solutions and this idea of dominance and everything that's happening right now, it's, it's dominant classes looking to step in and like, oh, well, you know, whites used to be dominant. So now let's disempower the whites and what that does is that liberates energy from old paradigms and old schools of thought. And it gives people, the, and they're, believe me, throughout history, there have always been people, if you, if you look back and read it correctly, there have always been some people that have been disadvantaged. And by the way, there are slaves in, or there have been stories of slaves in every single um, civilization. Right. Especially every large civilization, the blacks had slaves, Native Americans had slaves, white had sla- whites had slaves, and whites have been slaves. Blacks have been slaves, Native Americans, Latinos. You know, any any way you look at it, the difference is is there's a dominant ideology that was put in place to make it look um, and to make it be quite lopsided, and now now those chickens have come home to roost. But the there's a an undercurrent. Things like it's an it's a subtext to history that most people miss. And it's it's almost like that on again, off again relationship. Man, why can't we just mend this old wound? Well, it's because you're not really addressing what the core of the wound is. You're dressing it up to make it look different. And so that's really what society for the longest time has been doing. 
we're ignoring the deep underlying wound and we're talking about superficial wounds as if band-aids to where the bone pokes through the skin on top of it will heal the skin and all will go back to normal when it's really you're not seeing the underlying structural wound that has taken place and what that underlying structural wound is when when everyone's talking about race and gender and diversity and identity what what that original wound is is humans being cut off and disconnected from what has always given them power and that is you know a lot of it is the freedom of choice and not being harassed by angrier or more powerful mobs but also the ability to speak what you wish to speak the ability to have the arts in in the way that you wish and also it's having a connection with nature and this is why i see there's something very specific that's happening since 2020 is people are disconnecting themselves from where they grew up they're moving away from their communities they're scattering there's this mass exodus that's happening and they're also feeling like they don't have a true home in the country they don't have a true home in the nation or in politics they don't have a true home inside sociological movements they don't have a true home inside um much of anything these days because especially if you look at the internet everything is changing the definition of words is changing history is changing the way we come to know information is changing and this is why i like to speak about this in a way that like as i'm saying all this people audience must be sitting there thinking like my god it seems doomed it seems hopeless like everything is being upended and uprooted here's why i believe that we we need to take an alternative approach at looking at what is happening right now not as purely negative but as in the same chinese character that crisis um that you know the same chinese character that means crisis also means opportunity but we're told to look at the world the external world the collective social world that we we co-inhabit as crisis there's crisis happening but hardly any of us are looking at it as opportunity what does it mean that people are leaving geological geographical places where they were living their entire lives that they are leaving political ideologies that they've had since whatever their their forefathers you know like you know most people if you're born into a conservative house and you know like if you don't get highly engaged with politics you'll kind of stick with the same political ideology and economic ideology and there's all this all these subconscious things that we don't realize we just take them as the bedrock of reality we don't challenge them and so what i say is there's there's a lot of energy coming to the surface and when i'm talking about energy i'm not talking about anything woo woo i'm talking about literally if you have a habit like eating at a certain time every day change that habit and you'll realize that there's a surge of energy that comes to you. It doesn't matter what it is. If you eat at a certain time or if you smoke a cigarette or have your coffee at a certain time or watch the news at a certain time or go to bed at a certain time or have your social at certain times or your anti-social at certain times, no matter what it is, if you have a daily routine and a habit, if you change it, more 
biological energy from your from what your brain consumes all the way to how you metabolize food will actually change. And so what's happening now is there's a lot of energy coming to the surface. The time is ripe for massive societal change. And the the one thing that I think is not being utilized heavily enough is at this time in history, we're not looking at it as an opportunity for harmony. We're looking at it as how to deepen the divide between the people that we think are sane and the people who we think are increasingly becoming more insane. And we're, we're willing to throw more and more categories into the insane category during these crisis periods. We're willing to be like, you know what? F it. You know, I used to not care if somebody, you know, had a problem with guns or had a problem with, you know, like this kind of legislation or whatever it is, but now they're the enemy. We're much more easily, you know, heavy footed on this. This is where I stand and this is where I'm going to stand rather than listening to what does this mean? What is this big social upheaval happening in the United States? Because I think the United States is being taken down meticulously and in a very sophisticated manner right now. We're watching the decline of the United States and it's going to have similar themes to when Rome fell. And I don't think that there's much for people. It's not that I think it's going to cause this massive um, die off of people and massive strife, but something in the United States, an ideology that allowed for the United States as we once knew it to stand is crumbling right before us. So my solution is we need to empower ourselves, not look for some singular external um, person or an ideology to get behind, not to turn it into some to-do list with action steps applied to it. You know, where do you, where do I sign up? You know, how do I put my name on this grassroots movement? No, it's, it's actually inner work. And there's only one way to do it is for us individually to look at what does all this change mean about old patterns and ways about myself that I can change and I can shift because I really do believe that once we start making, and a lot of those changes that I'm talking about, they're going to be illogical in ways. And this is where I think logic isn't the only thing that we should engage with, because a lot of the times our logic can be solid, but it's not like it doesn't keep us in a certain frame of thinking. Sometimes it's through the fogginess or the chaotic periods that allows us to let go of old patterns that no longer serve us. So there's something about even approaching a time of irrationality, illogical mindsets and chaos and kind of destruction and seeing it for what it is. A lot of old patterns are coming to an end in the United States. Where is the beauty? How can this actually turn into something that increases people's um, harmony with one another? the synergy of people coming together. And that that's where I really think the solutions lie is we need to understand what community actually is. It's a collage of diversity. 
It's a collage of different ideas and different kinds of mirrors and people that can challenge the way we think and help refine the way we think rather than attacking our character. You were talking about that logical fallacy of attacking somebody's character, not the argument that they're, that they're coming with. Right. Um, another one is taking the argument, blowing it out to astronomical proportions and then attacking that argument. So right. some, somebody saying like, oh, well, you know, I, you know, let's say I believe in welfare and they say, oh, so you're a communist. Well, no, that's that's actually not what I was just saying. You right, you right. just blew it out to that proportion. And that's where people's minds shut down. So the thing is, is there are really intelligent, good people that have ideologies on both sides of this sociological divide that we're seeing that need to come together to witness that it doesn't matter what you believe when it comes to the ideas in their detail. What really matters is the harmony of people coming together when it seems impossible. And, and it sounds very, again, like a lot of these things, they, they sound woo-woo because there's not a lot of language other than woo-woo language that you can wrap around it. But imagine the power of people on the left and people on the right seeing that, you know what, no matter what, all news stations disempower us. They all make us feel like we hate one another. They all seem to want a race war. Even the ones who are saying we don't want a race war, they're, all they do is they point out the race war coming. You know what I mean? So it's like yep. almost like we can't stop talking about the thing that we're creating. And the number one thing that would help us stop creating it is to sing a different harmony, to sing a different tune. And that's, again, it sounds very woo-woo, but it, it's, it's more about what you bring to it, not the details of what you're saying, but how you say it that we need to start focusing on. And I really feel that that's how people will be like, you know what? I don't agree with your politics, man, but I freaking love listening to you because you put it in such a cohesive way that makes me want to get involved. I've heard people on my news station and from my documentary say, yo, Ben, there's so much I disagree with you when it comes to the details, but you know what I love? your voice, the soundtrack, and the fact that I have no doubt in my mind that you want to see a better world. And I believe that about you. So I would rather live with you, somebody who I disagree with on many accounts, than with many of the people that I agree with their logic, but I can't stand the way they talk. I can't stand the way they other the other people. I can't stand the way they don't see that it's just a trap. If, you, if you're for it, it's a trap. If you're against it, it's a trap. It's only by transcending it to a different way of being and behaving that you really get out of the rat race of the left-right paradigm. So I hope I made enough sense to your audience with that. No, no, I think you did. You did a fantastic job. Um, I think that uh, that that basically kind of um, you know adds a different spin on what I was already coming to, and I agree with it. And I get similar comments, too. And I've kind of told people, like, I don't think you should be listening to anybody that you completely agree with. You know, I've, I've told people, like, you know, don't do that. You know, like, one of the reasons, like, I noticed you started quoting Crystal Ball. One of the things that I like about the Rising show and now the, the Breaking Point show is that Sagar and Crystal are not clones of each other. Um, you know, in fact, Sagar's a Republican. You know, and there are times when, like, the comments have such nasty stuff about Sagar in it because, you know, the progressive group right now really just wants to just be coddled and told exactly what it wants to hear 
But I, as I would say, a healthier human being, find that I agree a lot with both of them. You know, but that's, we've kind of come to a point where we reject anything that's not even like, if even the slightest deviation, you know, if you don't agree with critical race theory in schools because you have concerns about this, then you're a racist, white supremacist, like, you know, just they, they start throwing all the most extremes at you. And the same, you know, you pointed out the communist one. That's another excellent example. And I, the funny thing is, is that I've been able to reach people on the right because I can talk to them. And like one little bit of a, uh, I guess I would call it an experiment because I had that control group of like my non-activist account where I'm talking to all these Trump supporters. And initially they were very harsh about my Bernie stuff I was putting up because I, you know, I was a Bernie Sanders supporter this time around, you know, and I, you know, and then my leftist friends immediately came in to be really mean back. And I'm like, no, 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 we're not doing that. Just, just don't be mean. Just, just let me do this. And so I talked to them and then I explained to them and I got through to them. And what ended up happening was every one of them who lived in Michigan went and voted for Bernie in our open primary. Now they're all Republicans. Like I would not have been able to get them to not vote for Trump, but they all came to the conclusion that, you know, you're right. He's, you know, I don't agree with him, but I genuinely believe that he is a good person. You know, like that was the point that I got across them. I'm like, look, if you don't agree with Bernie Sanders's say welfare programs or his Medicare for all, can you at least acknowledge that you think that if that doesn't work, Bernie Sanders would change it to fix it? He's like, yeah, I, I get that. I'm like, okay, well, do you think Joe Biden will? No, absolutely not. And I get the same conversations with people about Hillary Clinton. Now, you know, I agree with you in general when you point out that voting and politics and stuff is, is kind of like a, a charade almost in of itself. The only reason why I've found that it has any benefit is that you can, however, push ideologies to a certain degree. You can get new ideas out in people's minds and get them thinking. So, for example, I don't agree with Congressman Ron Paul about really very much of anything anymore. But if it wasn't for him back in 2008, we wouldn't be having this conversation because he's the one who posted, like somebody posted a link to me of him arguing with Rudy Giuliani about what was really going on in Iraq and what, you know, and, and, and on 9-11, you know, like what the motives were of the people involved. And that cracked open like a shell around my head, so to speak, to get me to start thinking about being an activist, you know? Um, so I have to credit Ron Paul, even though I'm not a free market libertarian, I don't think any of those things. But I genuinely believe that Ron Paul genuinely cares about people, and he does believe that his solutions are the best, but not just from the perspective of how it would benefit him, but, but what he thinks would benefit everybody. You know, I've had some great conversations, like I had a Spike Cohen. Um, he's an anarchist, libertarian. Most of my conversations with those people are usually really tough, you know, but he and I were able to exchange, you know, um, and I've great. And here's actually a great example, Lynn Wood. When I did my Rittenhouse documentary, he came on my show. He and I don't agree politically on virtually anything, but we had an extremely respectful conversation, and we came away from it feeling as though in some aspect of what we're trying to do, we're still allies. There are things that we have in common with each other, you know, and that's the aspect of it that I wish that more people would look at. Like, you know, if that is actually an excellent example. Jock Fresco does this. Daryl Davis does this when it comes to, like, say, changing people to a positive light. If if Daryl Davis had just went to the Ku Klux Klan rallies he went to and spat, you're a racist, you know, you have white privilege, you have this, it, it wouldn't work. Nobody who's locked into those mindsets is just suddenly going to come around because you did that. In fact, what it does is it, in, in it basically activates their defense systems to protect them from, uh-oh, you know, he's othering my species, my tribe, my whatever. I got to, like, rise to the defense. I can't listen to any of this, you know, um... 
Jack Fresco, for example, had a story where his mother was racist and he had a Japanese friend and he realized that he wasn't going to be able to bring his friend home, you know, because she wouldn't have been, you know, wouldn't have been willing to allow it. So she, he kind of engaged in a mild amount of um, deception. He told her that he had saved him, meaning that his Japanese friend had saved him while drowning in a river. So that suddenly like shook his mother and she's like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. You didn't tell me he saved your life. Could you please bring him back? You know. And so anyway, months go by and she starts spending time with this kid and gets to know him. And eventually she's calling him son and putting her arm around him and stuff. You know, and then eventually he confessed. He's like, Mom, he never saved me from the river. And his mom just kind of chuckled about it. And you know, it was like, you're right. You did the right thing. I would have never even let him in the door to learn who he was. And he's such a great person. He has such a great family. His culture is so interesting. You know, like, that's why I tell people, if you want to disarm hate, it has to be disarmed like a bomb. You don't disarm hate by spitting in those people's faces. That's something that Martin Luther King understood. It's something that Gandhi understood. But I'm afraid that, you know, we're kind of being driven out of that now. And, you know, so I I think we have to find that harmony and and look for the things that we can, you know, work together with certain people on. So the Crystal Ball and Sagar show is perfect for that. And I try to find other people I don't completely agree with. Like, so, for example, Ben Shapiro... (laughs) You can't mm-hmm. even bring up Ben Shapiro in certain circles. And, like, don't get me wrong, there is plenty of things that Ben Shapiro says that I do not agree with. But there are also things he says with sometimes that I'm afraid are maybe hard truths that people who don't like him don't want to hear. That doesn't mean he's always telling you. Know, that doesn't mean he's lo- he's wrong. You know, not about everything, anyway. You know, um, there are other, like, polarizing figures that are like that. Jordan Peterson, I was happy to hear that you like him. Most of the time I share a Jordan Peterson clip, and I just get nailed you know, by all these different people because he didn't accept any part of their ideology. And when I got to know the guy, I'm like, you know, there was actually, a, I'll give you an example. There was a perfect conversation because Brett Weinstein leans left, Jordan Peterson leans a little bit right, and then Joe Rogan is kind of like more of an organic, I'm just me kind of guy. And the three of them are having a conversation about economies. And one of the things Jordan Peterson says is you can't just let capitalism go crazy or, you know, people will starve. Like he openly admitted that that's the case. And he feels that you need to have a certain degree of safety nets. Now, most of my friends on the left have no idea that he said that. And they would never believe it if I told them either, because they think he's a super hard-lined alt-right just because he didn't want to use made up gender pronouns. He must therefore also be all of these other things, you know? And so, you know, and then on the other side of it, he sat down with Brett Weinstein and they don't politically agree on right versus left. But they all kind of came to a consensus. No, we do need to have a society where people can kind of strive to do things, but we do need to take care of our poor. You know, there are some situations where somebody, you know, needs to be helped up. And that was a beautiful conversation. If I had my way, that one clip of that one moment would be played about a billion times because it was an example of people kind of coming to the common understanding that people do still have to kind of take care of each other. The problem is now is that, you know, so many of these ideologies come with charged terms. So, for example... Communism is associated with millions of people dying. No, people don't generally talk about why that actually happened. And it's not because they failed, to sh- they failed to share. That's not what the issue was. What killed a bunch of people was identity politics, identifying the agricultural like landowners as the enemy and killing them all, leaving a bunch of people who did not have the knowledge of how to wage massive agriculture to try to figure out what to do. And when they couldn't, because agriculture is complicated, they starved a bunch of people. So it was actually the identity politics of othering any landowner that is what got all those people killed. And you see something ironically similar happening in South Africa. 
because they ran off all the white landowners. Because, yes, there was a history of colonization, obviously. But what they ended up doing was driving all of the white landowners away. And it's not that black people can't learn how to do agriculture. They absolutely can. The issue was is that they didn't happen to have that knowledge base. And so what ended up happening was famines and mass starvation. And now, ironically, South African countries are literally trying to contact these previous landowners and try to get them to come back to Africa because they know they can't run these, the land without their help because they don't have the knowledge yet. You know, um, these are, those are the things that destroyed a bunch of people. But anyway, to bring up my point is that now, because of what happened with communist Russia and, you know, and Maoist China and its, you know, its dark days, we can't even discuss working together. I can't even discuss, well, what if we kind of, you know, work together and pulled our resources and figured out ways to, you know, if, if you say that, it's immediately associated with, you know, millions of deaths. As if, as if the conversation of let's work together to make a better world was what caused millions of deaths. It isn't. It was about a conversation about, well, these people are your enemy. You need to get rid of them is what killed the millions of people. Yeah. You know, did you have, you want to respond to that? Well, you know, no, I, I appreciate what you were just saying because, I mean, the, uh, the, it is the thing. Like when you want to attack an ism, you find the worst 0.01% of anything that's happened under that ism's time period, its heyday, and you associate all of that ism with that 0.1% of nastiness, like the most disgusting, horrid, hard-to-swallow pill about any ism. That's what you make the whole thing about. Just like anyone who ever voted for Trump, they, they would lynch a black person in the street if they saw one. And you make that reality. You just keep repeating it over and over again, and you make that a reality. Same thing with communism. Same thing with any ism. And so the, the big lie effect from Nazi propaganda to repeat the falsehood. Right. And you use the tactics. And this is where like underlying tactics are really the prime movers of what congeals people together is, is the feeling of safety. And so the prime thing that holds most people together these days is the feeling like they got the short end of the stick and now's their time to rise. And there's only one way to do that with blood, with nastiness, and, you know, to, in a sense, repeat the same mistakes of the past. And so you were talking about, here's, here's what I mean about politics. Politics, you can't avoid it. I even put in Esoteric Agenda 1, the quote by Plato that says those who um, ignore politics are doomed to be ruled by their inferiors. And so everything is politics. Your body even operates on economics and politics. So these are culturally extrapolated things that naturally happen in the natural world, even though we're getting further and further away from the natural world. But Getting back to the essence of who people are, this is what we're lacking in our world today is actually trust. Because when you watch any campaign, you know, political campaign, I remember watching Ron Paul and I was barely into political ideologies like what is free market capitalism? What is libertarianism? What is the left? What is the right? What are the predominant ideologies of all these camps? What I was most blown away by was like, whoa, this guy, Ron Paul, it's almost sounds like he's talking from a place of historical empirical wisdom and 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 logic 
whereas everybody else sounds like they're they have a script written for them. So you'll have Ron Paul saying something, and then the camera goes to um, you know Mitt Romney and John McCain snickering and rolling their eyes like children, right? And that these are these are the people that came closest to being the Republican nominees of that race. That's the craziest thing, is John McCain and Mitt Romney snickering and rolling their eyes like a, a couple of junior high kids at Ron Paul, the only one that sounds like he's actually speaking from his conscience and his heart. Right. That is a sign of the times. So that person that wasn't speaking your language but actually got you, you know, there was something that the way he spoke spoke to you is the same thing that Tulsi Gabbard did to me this last election. Like, she wow. Was awesome. She is yeah. amazing. The only one that seemed like she was actually, and, 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 you know, this, I, you know, to be perfectly honest, I, I didn't really get too into Bernie Sanders, but to be perfectly honest, I also didn't really heavily look into it. And the same thing with Andrew Yang. There's a lot of people that are like, Oh, we'll give him a chance. And, you know, like I can I can find things I like about a bunch of candidates, to be honest. I'm not on a hunt to try and find who I hate the most so I can pick the lesser of two evils. The bottom line is, is you just mentioned people from all around the political spectrum speaking to you. So what that means is the underlying ideology and the camp and the, the ism that they apply themselves to most isn't the thing that speaks the loudest about them. Ron Paul made people who had no idea what libertarian even meant look into it. Right. Tulsi Gabbard started getting people looking into even people on the right were like, whoa, uh, she actually seems like she cares. She's actually speaking to corruption rather than having a script that she's reading. And, you know, before we get too far, go ahead and finish your point. Before we get too far away, I have some comments about Tulsi Gabbard, but go ahead. Sure, sure. Well, yeah, I mean, really, the, the main point I wanted to come back to was look at how all these people from Jordan Peterson to Weinstein to um, to uh, Ron Paul, all these people, they share very different ideologies, but there's something refreshing about how trustworthy they seem. This is what we're lacking in politics. And it's the last thing you'll hear anyone talking about. You know, it, most people are just like, well, if you don't like the main Republican candidate or the main Democratic candidate, you know, then forget anybody else. You're just saying that the whole system is effed and the way thing, you know, the, you know, you must be calling for anarchy if you're not looking at the left and not looking at the right. And by the way, most people don't even know what anarchy even means, where that comes from, that word. But the bottom line is, is like, you know, backtracking a little into the conversation, what people, there's a deficiency in politics. It's not ideolo- it's not ideological deficiency. What it really is, is it's the trust that people are even talking about what they believe in anymore. Most candidates, it really does seem like They've either drank the Kool-Aid and they're they're off their rocker or they're scripted. John McCain, sorry, scripted. Mitt Romney, scripted. Huckabee, you know what? Not so much. I, I didn't really feel much scripted about him. I just didn't feel like he was going to be put out there enough. 
You know, so there are some people that I'm like, yeah, okay. But I feel like the ones who get the closest to the presidency are the ones who will read the script the most religiously. And and so there will there have been these people from the left, the right, the center, the the whatever that people are like, man, this is refreshing. You know, they almost make me want to skip my party and jump into their party. And it's less about ideology. It's more about does that person seem like they're actually speaking from their conscience and like they mean every word like they, it is wisdom that is pouring through them. Because I'll tell you, Trump, you know, I don't like him or dislike him. I've never met the guy. He is a showman. Biden, I don't like him or dislike him. He's less of a showman, but he's kind of somebody that found himself in a position. And, you know, so there's all these people like that I've, I've lumped together in the category of they will read a script. And if you watch any news outlet on the left and on the right, they regurgitate the same exact script. Left, right, doesn't matter. They regurgitate the script. So that, that's why I call into question politics in general, not saying that politics in general need to be done away with. It's impossible. You can't. It's like economics. Like they can be transformed, but you don't really do away with them. Um, what it is, is you radically change the way that energy is flows through it. And that's all economics are, is how do resources and manpower, which is another resource, um, how do they flow and what are the rules? But well, let me, I mean, um, go well, let me, yeah, let me get back on just cause I don't want to get, I do want to hear what you have to say about that. Sure. I just want to put this point out there, but the, what I call the Tulsi Gabbard effect, because I know a bunch of Trump supporters, I think all but one of them openly told me that they would have voted for her instead of voting for Trump in 2020. Um, like just, and I'm like, you know who you're talking about, right? This is a woman who advocates Medicare for all. She advocates childcare and free college and all these things that you've been complaining about that you don't like. She advocates all of those things. They're like, yeah, I know. But for her, I just don't care. Like I just, I trust her on foreign policy and I just get the feeling she'd be a good leader. That's what these people told me. And when I was watching her being interviewed, that's the other thing I think about her was that when she was in debates, it was difficult because you get these tiny little sound bites, especially when there was like 3 million Democratic candidates that year. But when she was on Joe Rogan was really what sold me. She has a poise and a confidence, you know, and being a major in the military, you know, in the medical field, she's seen crap up close and personal. And you can tell, you know, that she has that about her. And that's what the magnetism of leadership that I, you know, that I was like, man, I'd follow this lady into war for sure. You know, and it's like just because of who she was and how she carried herself. The thing that the left would not process about this was that they claim that all Republicans are sexist and they claim that they don't like anybody who's not white. Yet all of my Republican friends said they would have voted for Tulsi Gabbard. You know, and even in 2016, most of my friends told me that they would have voted for Bernie rather than Trump. But there was a thing about Trump that he was tapping into that people don't really want to face. They want to say that it was about the racism and the sexism and all that. But the reality is, it's like actually South Park did a beautiful parody on this that I don't think people really got, which was like the people are reacting to the, the Trump character that's not really Trump. And they're like, oh, he just talks like a normal person. It makes me think like, you know, he actually is like, you know, like us, like I can identify with him. Our, you know, when you talked about the script, 
something I sensed very early on because I used to be a paid political analyst for Senator Gravel was people were underestimating Trump. They were underestimating Bernie and people are getting sick of plastic candidates. Like they, they don't, they don't want that anymore. They're, they're over it, you know? And that's why if they, and that's why they, if they continue to run candidates like that, they're just going to continue to have problems. Um, I honestly don't feel if COVID had happened, had not, basically if COVID had not happened, I don't think Joe Biden would have won. But regardless, I don't want to get too deep down that rabbit hole. I want to get back to where we were at. But I just, I wanted to comment about a little bit about Tulsi and Andrew Yang. You know, he's a smart guy. I, you know, I listened to his audio book and that's what kind of sold me on him. He really does look at things critically to try to help people. You know, he's what I would call, he calls himself a humanistic capitalist. He still believes in capitalism. But he acknowledges that capitalism has to service and make people's lives better, and not just some, but all of them, which is like a radical concept to many people. But anyway, you know, so go ahead and go back to where we were at with that. And I just wanted to get those two concepts out there was just to say that, you know, Tulsi Gabbard had a magnetism in her leadership that I wish we could have gotten. And I, I think we missed a seriously great opportunity there. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so I, I appreciate what you were saying. And I feel that you know, I the way I'm taking a lot of this is I realize there is a certain form of influence that I can have, and it's very specific. Like, if I – I would not have the, the force and effect to do something that I didn't believe in. I wouldn't be as successful in it. So if I were to all of a sudden just hop into um, – just a, a different line that I didn't feel so strongly about just because whatever it suits me in a certain way, I wouldn't have the force and effect and the, the type of influence that I have. So this is why I, I really believe that people like Ron Paul and Tulsi, and there, there've been others for sure that uh, speak to people across the party line and over the noise. It's almost like they speak over the noise that's out there. And this is what I think we need to focus on. Like, what is it? There is something deeper than specific political divides that it doesn't make those political divides nonsense. And we need to ignore them. There's a reason why they're coming up the way they are. It's just, they're being, it's the only thing we're focusing on. It really is like imagine, uh, you know, two lovers in a fight and all they're doing, neither of them are listening to the other side. And they're they're basically they're only reiterating their own hurt. And when somebody says like, well, don't you remember the last time that you slammed the door in my face for something I barely did? And and then the other doesn't say, yes, I remember that 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 was me out of character. I'm sorry. They don't do that. They just say, well, do you remember the last time that you, you know, dropped my keys in the toilet and broke the key fob and I couldn't <laughs> start the car? And you know what right. I mean? Yep. That's yep. what the left right. Um, that's what the left right ping pong battle feels like. It's not what it is. It's just the way the mechanism is being used. And so this is why I think we actually we're in a good position to see the nonsense of it. It has to get loud to wake us out of the stupor that we've been in. And by the way, when I'm talking, when I talked about the fourth turning, what's happening right now, if history repeats itself the way that it has and the way that it was laid out in that book, a lot of things about the political system are just going to change. 
It's up to us how they change. That's the difference is a lot of people, they, they, they try and stop the wave from coming. It's like, have you ever been, you know, at the beach and you're walking into the water and the waves are kind of pushing you around and you try and do that little boy game where you, you stop the wave, like I'm stronger than the wave and you stop it. Right. In many ways, that's like what most people are trying to do. They're trying to exert their dominance to show I'm strong enough to stop what is naturally coming. And others, over time, the islanders have found, you know what? What if you just used a board and you surf the wave? You, what if you just harnessed that energy? This is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the fourth turning. It's not like when they call it a crisis period. I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm talking about it this way now because I'm going to start talking about it as the opportunity period as well as the crisis period. So we don't have to not use the word crisis because that would be too new agey. It's like, oh no, it's not hard periods of your life. They're just moments where you're, you know, a, a butter or a caterpillar in a cocoon ready to become <laughs> a butterfly. You know what I mean? It's just like, no, right. my life sucks right now. Let's not, you know, get past the brass tacks of how things are disadvantaged. But let's see that in the hard work, is actually where the beauty comes from. If there wasn't this crisis, it would be harder to see the beauty and the opportunity in front of us. So when we're seeing so much talk of racism and critical race theory and everything's about race and our differences and, you know, it, there's more and more driving a wedge between people of color and genders and people wanting to be able to... to be who they are without being shamed and, and stuff like that, which is all very beautiful. But you see how people are talking about it? They're talking about color with this look on their face of disgust. They're talking about gender with this look of disgust on their face. And it's not about, you know, like, oh, I can't stand blacks and I can't stand whites and I can't stand transgender and I can't stand. No, it's just I can't stand the other. I can't stand right. the people on the other side of the ideology. How dare they? That is the, that you see how it's nuanced. It doesn't matter whether you're on the left or the right. The tactic is the same. So this is where it gets into woo woo territory is we have to talk, in, you know, in generalities and get away from some of the details, not all of them, but some of the details to see the hidden beauty in the crisis that we're facing right now. Because I do believe that as much as, you know, like Trump, whatever, I didn't care. Like he got into office. I was like, okay, so what does that mean? Hillary's not in office. That's what it really means. Right. And, and you know, what does it mean about Trump? Okay, then we have four to eight years of this. What's it going to be? He didn't start any new wars, but he definitely drone striked Syria. Or was it sure. Libya? I can't remember. I'm, I'm turning into, you know, I know Biden just uh, made a, you know, an error between talking about Libya and Syria. But the bottom line is, is like, I'm not pointing fun at Trump or pointing fun at Biden. They're human beings. I've never met them. Why would I hate even the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers? I don't have extra reasons to hold hatred in my heart. And people are like, oh, why are you worried about hate? Just get back to the facts. No, this is where the ultra um, reductionist, scientism you know people get into stop talking about energy and timeless mythological blah 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 just talk about the news 
And this is where people start like, man, you are disempowering yourself. We are humans with creative abilities. You go back all the way to the dawn of time. You will never have a society without science, religion, or science, religion, philosophy, and art. You'll never have uh, any society without a mix of those. But not every citizen is a scientist, philosopher, um, religious devotee, and an artist. So we have to celebrate our diversity. That is what we're all being shown right now. We have to celebrate our diversity, not war over diversity. But we're being talked to like we're children, like... Oh, you look at the left. They're just trying to turn everyone into a transvestite. And, you know, they're trying to get blacks to hate whites and whites to, to fear blacks and, you know, minorities to, to overthrow white dominance. No, that's not what the whole left is doing. Stop taking the whole left and reducing right. them to the bottom 1%. And the same with the right. You know, like 75 million people voted for Trump this, you know, or somewhere around there voted for Trump. Right. Does every single one of those 75 million Americans really like look down their noses at all other races and say, oh, I'm so much better than them. Man, I wish that the laws weren't in place so I could just go lynch all these blacks and Latinos and transvestites and homos. And right. You know, like, no, that's not how 75 million Americans think just because they voted for this one person. So this is the tactic you get. The world, you get, not the world, and yes, it's happening around the world, but let's just stick with the country. In order for the real agenda behind left-right politics to win, you have to divide people because people united are powerful. People divided are predictable. That is the linchpin here. People divided are predictable. United, they're less predictable. They're more creative and think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. First, you need, uh, you know, shelter. You need, you know, the you need food. You need oxygen. You need the core elements of survivability. Then you need to feel safe. And only once you have those two requirements of the feeling of, of shelter, the you know, the basic necessities, and a feeling of safety, will you ever get to community, and will you ever get to creativity? So there's something about people in numbers that are powerful, and that is what the real powers above the left-right politics that are playing the left-right people who are stuck in left-right identity politics or just left-right politics in general, they're, they're being played to believe that the enemy is your neighbor and that there is an enemy. And really, really, the enemy is is within us. And again, this might sound like that woo-woo, oh, it's it's within. Yeah, the whole struggle is within. That's legit. That's legit. The, the yeah. enemy is the mechanism inside of our thought processes that allow us to feel like the enemy is our neighbor or the enemy is a Rothschild or the enemy has an identity that you can rally against. This is what I mean by I, like politics. Again, you can't do away with it. But the bottom line is... I'm trying to remind people we have so much more power. The solutions are not going and voting. I'm not saying don't go and vote because, yes, there is power in that. Why would I cut you off from that part of your power? But why would you cut yourself off to your inner power just because it sounds like a Tony Robbins book, right? 
Right. What I'm talking about is you're a, can I say the F word? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. You are a fucking human being. Right. We barely know what the fuck a human being is. The science is not in. We barely know what a human being is, let alone many human beings that are in harmony. We barely know what that means. But if you want to know, if you really want to know what's disadvantaging you, you look at who you can't criticize and what you can't criticize and what topics are off the table to be talked about. And that's, that's basically what you're seeing today. You can talk about race to your heart's content. You can talk about Trump to your heart's content. You can even talk about Biden to your heart's content. But don't bring up the, you know, the, World, Econom- <clears throat> the World Economic Forum, the rich elite who gather at Davos, the people at Necker Island, Riker Island, those who are behind big data, those who get to see data points on m- billions of people but you don't even ever know their name or who they are and you cannot find data on them. You kidding me? We're not allowed to talk about that, but we're allowed to say that our neighbor who voted for Trump is the enemy. This is where we're really starting to get into the territory of like, we can take our power back. We just don't know the mechanism of doing it. And we're given false mechanisms that actually make the problem worse. So if you're watching the news without the understanding that you're only being given the tools and the mechanism to make the wound worse, never better, then you're not going to be able to climb out of the hole and see it from a new perspective. Yeah, that's definitely brilliant. Um, I want to say, you know, Ben, let's uh, take a moment to talk just about like what your projects are right now so that my viewers can check it out. I know you, you hinted that you're looking at making another movie. Um, I, you said you didn't really want to get into the details too much, but I guess, um, first of all, where can people check out your work as it is now? Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Ben Joseph Stewart.com. So Ben Joseph Stewart, S T E W A R T.com is my website. And, um, you can find all my media there. I, you know, I belong well over a decade of um, films and series on Gaia, on YouTube, uh, on BenJosephStewart.com. And um, so, yeah, the films that I just released a film called DMT Quest. Um, For your audience, DMT, if you haven't heard of it, is dimethyltryptamine. It's a psychedelic compound. Um, Rick Strassman is the first researcher to you know, start doing psychedelic studies in the U.S. since the prohibition. Um, He broke through that wall studying DMT. It makes people, it doesn't make them, it brings consciousness to a realm that seems structured, not just a distortion of this reality where there's other beings and stuff like that. But lo and behold, breath work, you know, like Wim Hof breathing also does the same thing. And this documentary DMT quest on YouTube, it's free. It's got like half a million views on it. It was just released last year. Um, It is also showing that your brain is producing this psychedelic compound all the time in levels comparable to serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. So like that right there is we're using that as a way to start pointing at, look, we have a lot of um, things about, your brain that you can activate just by augmenting your breath that put you into an altered state of reality where the drugs that are being produced inside your head are not only illegal, 
but they're now being shown to reduce anxiety, reduce intractable depression, PTSD, um, various other things. And your brain produces that. So it's, again, it's trying to show you a human being is amazing, is absolutely incredible. Now I'm working on a documentary with a, um, a really famous podcaster named uh, Aubrey Marcus. He started on it. Academy and on it is a supplement brand that Joe Rogan is a part of and um, they just sold to Unilever and um, so he has a podcast but he also did a dark room retreat where you go into darkness for like seven days complete pitch black all lights blotted out and um, your brain starts producing more DMT that's the theory it's not proven yet that's the theory and you start having these dmt like visions just because you remove light for seven days um so the interesting thing about that is we're doing this documentary it's it's going to come out in september the soundtrack is really moving but it's one of the first movies that i've done that's not completely heady it's really more of like a storyline showing this guy beforehand through the darkness retreat and just afterwards and a few people talking we were about to get jordan peterson to talk on it maybe jamie wheel um graham hancock you know quite a few other people but um but that's going to be a super interesting one about what darkness does to consciousness not just the brain and brain chemistry but consciousness and then i'm also working on a film that's going to go on tim pool's podcast uh, or not his podcast, I'm sorry, his uh, website, um, timpool.com or timcast.com. I, I, I'm not sure what it is. He's very right, um, you know, leans more on the Republican side, even though he said he only recently hopped over to that side. Um, but I just, I would have been on his podcast a couple times and I just said, yo, dude, I'm going to do a documentary called Welcome to the Machine on technology, where it's come from, where it is today, where it's going, and how it changes human consciousness and the way humans think in mass. And so we're working on that documentary. So these are the documentaries that I'm working on right now. Dark Room, a darkness and consciousness film uh, called Awaken in the Darkness, or Awake in the Darkness, which is a quote from Khalil Gibran. And then um, a film called Welcome to the Machine that will go on Tim Pool's website. Yeah, welcome to the machine, um, for sure. Like that, I think I talked to you a little bit about this. Is I can already tell that technology has done things to my brain. Um, you know that just using it all the time and having a different way of accessing information. And I've also noticed that it's changed the way that other people do. Like when you and I were younger, you might rewatch a movie. You know, nowadays kids don't want to do that. You know, they they look at you crazy. Like what? Why would we watch that again? You know, I mean, there are exceptions, but like everything's on demand now everything's different so like i think if what's what's lost about the movie thing is that you miss a lot of nuances in a movie if you don't watch it a bunch of times but but anyway um i'm happy to hear you're making more movies um and are you still what about your gaia program is that like going to be ongoing or well on gaia i'm not a producer there anymore and i made the series psychedelica i made two seasons of it and that's all there's going to be of psychedelica and that's on the history of uh, the history and the modernity and the future of psychedelics, and also their shamanic container. So the um, the indigenous cultural container that's been built 
ancestrally around these plants for thousands of years. Super interesting. If you if your audience is not um, very well versed uh, or not into psychedelics, just learning about the history of indigenous use of psychedelics and why they used it, it was a part of their science. It was pretty fascinating. But anyway, so that's on Gaia. And I also had a show called Limitless. I might do a season two of Limitless because it's about time. But Limitless is all about human potential. So I talk about conspiracy. Uh, I talk about um, biohacking. I talk about neurology. I talk about fascia. I talk about movement. Uh, I talk about breath. I talk about logic and um, the the rational and the irrational and the, the benefits of both of them used rightly, like tools being used rightly. And when I say conspiracy, I say conspiracy as a tool, as an overarching tool. Because I don't know about you, man, but for me, conspiracy woke me up in a, in a way that inspired me to get more engaged with what was happening in the world. Whereas education, the educational system, made me bored with history. It made me feel like I'm just a... A, a helpless recipient of the past, of the the laws of the universe, of the economic um, and industrial uh, grid and architecture and infrastructure out there. Um, it made me feel kind of useless. I, I could only become a cog of a machine. That's all school ever did for me. Conspiracy got me in touch with my potential made me believe that, you know what, Ben, when you engage creatively with problems, doesn't matter what the problem is, when you engage creatively with problems, you sharpen the blade of consciousness and you become a better person, more equipped to bring goodness and harmony into the world, no matter how you define that. So to me, you know, that's what Limitless was on that on that show and why I even talk about conspiracy and biohacking and all these different things is, no matter what, you are a nobody, and that's a good thing. Because as soon as you become a somebody, then you have to limit what you are defined by who you aren't. And when you are a nobody, it's super interesting. I'm not talking about derogatorily becoming nobody like you suck. I mean, when you are not attached to the outcome or the types of tools that are and resources that are available to you, then you realize that that is the game that's being played in politics, in media, in every walk of life, is you cut people off from resources and you make them feel righteous for doing it. You, you get them to believe that the only way to feel righteous and indig, you know, uh, dignified inside you is to cut yourself off from a resource that would actually empower you if you engaged with it. So that's the whole point of the show on Gaia. I know I went on another tangent, but like the show is called Limitless. It's me talking to the camera, 30 minutes, an episode, um, 13 episodes. And the last, I'll end on this. I think community is a huge part of the answer. And community doesn't have to be people growing food on 20 acres that they bought together. And they're all, you know, like promiscuous and, you know, living like a, you know, a hippie commune. That's where my, people's minds normally go. But the last episode of Limitless is called The Bigger Picture. And the bigger picture of our human potential is each other. It's not what can I do as an individual anymore. It's what can we do together 
knowing that I'm not going to agree with everything you guys believe, say, do, and that uncomfortability that I feel inside me when I witness you doing what I wouldn't is actually a good thing. It's what allows me to break through old sacred cows in my habituation and my behavior, old dogmas that I didn't even realize I had, and old things that I would, old resources I refuse to access because no, 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 they are the ones who do that and I don't like them. So I'm not going to access that resource. When you open yourself up to what's out there and you realize that our diversity, our color, our voice, our smell, our biome, our geological positioning, all these things are opportunities in disguise. But the outside world is only going to show you the crisis of it. They're not going to show you the opportunity underneath it. We need more people like you and like me to do what you were talking about in that one scientific study. If there was one person in an entire group of people talking bullshit, if there was one person other than you saying something that resonates with you, that little spark of resonance is better than an ocean, is more effective than an ocean of dissonance. So right. think about that. So you and I using our voices authentically. I am not a scientist, but guess what? I am going to speak my truth no matter what. Nobody else has the right to tell me to shut up because some external science or dogma can fact check me, right? This is what we've become afraid of. We're afraid of being fact-checked. Oh, well, Google says you're wrong, so now you're a dipshit all of a sudden. No, listen to the timeless truth and resonance of what can bring us together rather than wedge us apart more. This is the whole point of me making films, music, coming onto podcasts, getting up in the morning, and even raising my family. The whole point of it is I want to see a better world with more harmony, and I know how to do it, whether I know how to put it in scientific, factual terms or allegorical terms, it doesn't matter. So I hope your audience has enjoyed, you know, this deviation. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's not super different. I just, you know, um, I don't always just talk in, in scientific jargon all the time. I just, oh, I know. I know you, man. We have, yeah. we have history. I, I appreciate <laughs> right. who you are for exactly who you are. So what I was going to say, one more thing, though, is um, how is Hirasonic doing? Are you? I mean, what's going on with your music? Oh, damn, that's right. We, yeah, Hirasonic is uh, it's over. Um, 2013 is when it ended. That, that really shows that we haven't, uh, we haven't done a no, we podcast for a while. <laughs> that makes me sad. I had so much great conversations with you and your band. Well, it's I like back. Your music. It's back, man, and I appreciate that you're back. I always had a great time chatting with you. Dude, Hyrosonic, I've it's been coming up a lot for me lately. Um, for the audience, Hyrosonic, H-I-E-R-O-S-O-N-I-C, all one word. Hyro means sacred. Sonic means vibration, sacred vibration. Hyrosonic on Spotify. There's an album called Consciousness, Fame, God, Money, Power. And those lyrics, even though it's kind of, you know, it's got a little Muse, Nine Inch Nails, Tool, you know, even Rage Against the Machine vibe at times. Um, so it's it's got that vibe, and I was a little bit angrier back then, but those lyrics are more um, profound today than they were back then. So I would encourage everyone, just it's free. Just, or if you have Spotify, just go find Hyrosonic. Listen to the lyrics of that album. Um, and so I've been still writing a lot of music, but it's a lot. I'm in Nashville now. Not that it's super influenced me, but 
I do a lot of acoustic singer songwriter type of music, and I'm I'm about to start going into the studio to record some of the new music. Oh, well, that's awesome! All right, well. Ben, it's been amazing to have you on, and uh, just do me a favor and, and stick around for a moment here after I stop recording. I'm going to do my sure. my outro business, but um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I know this has been a long conversation, but that's kind of the way I like things to be, um, you know, and what I would tell people, especially my YouTubers that I know that don't normally listen to podcast-type long-form conversations is don't think that you have to take the thing all at once. I listen to podcasts in pieces. I might even pause one and then come back to it later. You know, um, but what you could really do for me is share this. Um, again, I'm not monetized. That's not my motive right now. Um, but I would like to build an audience just so I can try to get, you know, the truth and messages like this out there. So share the hell out of this because the algorithm de- definitely started choking me off when I started um, discussing certain very uh, controversial topics. And if you're new or maybe you're checking this out because of Ben, I can't promise that you're going to agree with everything I say, but I don't want you to. I do encourage people to civilly debate me in the comments, you know, and it's even possible sometimes I might bring you on to discuss what it is you disagree with me on. My main, uh, my main purpose actually is to get people who disagree with each other to start having a good dialogue. So um, thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. Um, tomorrow I'm going to be interviewing, uh, interviewing Daryl Davis the black activist who basically made a, you know, a career. It's not a financial career, but regardless, a career out of bringing people back from the cult that is racism, you know, by bringing even high level national leaders of the Ku Klux Klan away from racism. And he did it through peaceful, non-combative means. So um, check out my YouTube channel. You can check out my anchor podcast. I have shows going all the way back to 2008. I do put up a disclaimer I have changed a lot since 2008 over the years. I mean, there are a lot of things I said back then that I would stay, say still, you know, apply to now. But there should be something for everybody in my archives, whether you're an anarcho-primitivist, anarcho-capitalist, anarcho-communist, anarcho-syndicalist, or you're just a straight-on capitalist or straight-on socialist. You know, I've had people from all kinds of different walks of life on to discuss those things. So thanks again for tuning in to V-Radio.